Coming up, it's Counterculture with Marie Buskey. A look into the world of critical social justice, woke culture, and more on RCR. Reality Check Radio. People are struggling to have conversations and connect with others that they don't completely agree with on every topic. And I think that's probably the biggest problem that we need to try and solve is how after all this division and after all this separation, do we end up bringing people together again? And what does unity really look like? New Zealand faces some pretty big issues. First one is COVID in the aftermath. There's no getting away from that. Second is racial division. It's been ginned up and it's dangerous. Another issue that maybe people haven't got their head around yet is digital currency. What form does that take? Is it programmable? Will it be used to manipulate behaviour and patterns of behaviour? Those questions need to be asked and answered. How can you have fair, open, democratic government by people who are appointed? It's a ridiculous idea. And if that idea is taken to its zenith, then this country is in real trouble because democracy, one person, one vote, where every vote is of equal value, has got to be the foundation of a modern New Zealand. What's true, what's not true, how our kids are to be educated. And, you know, I have a great fear for the future. I think we know from history where this could end up. Welcome to Counterculture on Reality Check Radio. I am your host, Marie Buskey, and this is the place where we discuss the issues through a cultural lens and how ideology is impacting our everyday lives. As usual, another busy old morning. First up, we have a conversation I have been itching to have for a long time. I speak with Dane Giroux, writer for film and television and co-founder of the Plain Sight blog. Dane is a creative tour de force and has a new project to discuss. We'll talk about this and I am sure we will wander off into culture and politics as well. I then touch base with Helen Houghton, leader of the New Conservative Party, and we'll see how things are progressing on the campaign and growing concerns from parents about the expansion of relationship and gender education in our schools. Marty will also be back for Media Matters and we'll talk about the week in politics and news and catch up on all the things that, you know, catch our eye. And then we'll finish things off with Woke News of the Week. Time now, though, to dive into the mailbag for some of your feedback. From the text machine, Marie is the best interviewer I've heard for many, many years. First class, thank you. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Uh, Also from the text machine, first time listener here, love RCR content. The world is pushing back against all this shit we have. We're all humans. Reboot and reset. Lots and lots of smiley emojis for this one. Pronouns, what a joke. You have to laugh, don't you? You certainly do. I hope Russell can stand strong against all of this and the media get back to their jobs. They are the reason, government in brackets, what they are diverting our attention away from, push back. And that is, again, from the text machine, Marie U. Rock, such a clever way of delivering, loved it, and the message with a never-ending story. That's in reference to Aotearoa Farm. Uh, 
Uh, discussion was so great, which I did several weeks ago. Why not have a model where all minor parties come together for a single party vote with agreement that each leader fills a position for a designated amount of time and then at a point the amalgamated party votes for a leader who provides the best for a party? That is a really interesting question. I've actually gone and flicked this question across um, to Rodney's team for Politics Explained because they might be able to pick that one up and talk about that a little bit further. So thank you very much for your feedback. Remember, 2057 is the text number or inbox at realitycheck.radio. The animals of Aotearoa Farm will come out to play in a moment. It's time to check in with all the animals down at Aotearoa Farm. They say bad things happen in threes. And if that is true, our chippy pork is starting to sweat. As the election on Aotearoa Farm draws closer, an uneasy sense of anxiety appears to be rippling through those animals reliant on the largesse of squealers' generosity. And the young farm animals who have been sheltered by hard toil in the fields instead fattened up on a diet of free feed and fairy tales, glitter and rainbows, now have the dawning realisation that life on the farm is about to change. After many months, word has filtered back to Aotearoa Farm of Napoleon's whereabouts. She disappeared in the dark of night when faced with the reality of the mess she'd created. But like a porcine Lazarus, she was heard to be speaking to sheep on Liberty Farm, masking in her own air of success and self-importance, regaling the sheep of how she saved Aotearoa Farm from itself, and she would do the same for Liberty Farm. Chippy busied himself by visiting as many paddocks as he could, figuring the east pastures, who were still recovering from floods, would be a good place to start. The reception was soggy. Even grand gestures for new vet sheds didn't excite them, leaving just the entourage of sheep to bleat dutifully at Chippy's hollow promises. The gloom continued as the weather turned again in the South Meadow, and the glimmer of hope that the Aotearoa warthogs would be victorious were dashed resoundingly. There isn't enough sausage rolls on the farm that will bolster the mood of our maudlin porcine. Winky Lux is looking for a whistle. Not to round up the sheep, but to help the referee a potential stoush brewing between Davy Piglet and Winnie Ben. The petulant piglet is having to face the reality that the wily old donkey is likely to make it back around the farmhouse table. Davy has his heart set on being seated near the top of the table, and nothing will stop the piglet achieving his goals, especially now he's so close. However, Winnie Ben is still packing out pens across the length and breadth of the farm, even in the piglet's patch. Oinky buffed his speckled head to a pristine shine and quietly sought out the old donkey. Better he's on side, as this seasoned old campaigner is now well and truly saddled up for another rodeo, and Oinky just can't take the chance of having Chippy back and cozied up to the free-range pigs and the shady characters in the kunikuni wallow. A chat was had and an announcement made. The piglet squealed, and the last anyone saw of Oinky, he was off to buy a whistle, just in case. The chickens have been busy this week. 
A gathering of many of the feathered flock in the barn raised a few eyebrows about the farm. Despite the pigs and sheep's best efforts to discredit the chickens, labelling them conspiracists, they persist and worst yet, the avians appear to be accurate in their assertions that most of the farm's current woes are not just from Napoleon's, but Chippy's administrations during the Great Sickness. The more the chickens cluck and cackle, the more incensed the sheep become, the vetchids are now being overrun with animals claiming to see elephants, if only in a metaphorical sense. So with the warthogs and the black cats' losses in the international sporting fixtures, the east and south meadows underwater and nothing chippy appears to say makes any difference to the wider farm, he looks enviously across at Napoleon, living the life she's always lustily cleaved on Liberty Farm, and ponders if he too would make a move. Perhaps if the Black Bulls fail to bring back the Bovey Ball World Cup, Chippy might want to start packing now to hasten his escape come October 15. You can join me for episodes of Aotearoa Farm here live on Counterculture every Wednesday or you can search them out on the new RCR app. Just pop Aotearoa into the search bar and all episodes will appear. Good morning and welcome back to Counterculture. Here with Marie and my next guest this morning is Dane Giroux. He is a writer, a free speech advocate and generally an all-round man that knows lots of things. Good morning, Dane. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Good. I'm finally excited that we're getting to record one of these conversations because we've had many of them and we never get around to recording any of them. So here we are and we're going to do it today. It's very exciting. I am excited. And we have got so much to talk about, and it's almost it almost feels like where to start. But for our listeners that don't know you, tell them a little bit about who and what you are and what you've been up to. Well, I am a TV writer primarily, or, or have been. I mean, the industry is changing so much and so rapidly. I find that I've got a new title every six months because of technology. So it's kidding. I can't keep up with it. But uh, a TV writer, I've written. I did a lot of work in documentary before I sort of broke as a uh, comedy writer with a show called Find Me a Māori Bride, which was uh, a big hit and really lifted my stock in the industry. And since then, I've done about five TV comedies, series, written them. Didn't create all of them, but created a lot of them. I create a lot of shows, written on feature films and uh, do a lot of ghostwriting for other people have always been a free speech uh, advocate and very passionate about it and was a member of the free speech union. I stepped down uh, off their board not um, not that long ago after four years or something of just working hard and uh, and achieving a lot actually and uh, so that was a very that was very inspiring because I would have been pretty cynical about politics before then thinking nothing I do is going to make a difference and of course it we made a big difference, and and I see that the boys and and the girls <laughs> at the Free Speech Union are continuing to make a huge difference. Um, I just watch with admiration for what they're doing and and how they're growing. So, so that's me. I, I used to be a guitarist before that. I was a musician uh, before I even got into TV. And I and I I think a lot of the free speech, freedom loving stuff comes from my rock and roll past. To be perfectly honest with you. Because I was a bit of a hellraiser, uh, provocateur on stage, and we used to love that stuff. And uh, I, I think anyone in the arts 
if you're in the arts and you don't support free speech, uh, there's something wrong with you. I mean, mm. I, I really believe that. Um, and I do see some, you know, comedians working today who, um, you know, would be peers of mine who uh, disagree with me on free speech. And I think, hey, you write jokes for a living, man. And so you, really, you really want that police by the state? It's like, what, what do you do? But but that's who I am, basically, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, let's sort of unpick that thread a little bit around comedy and writing, because there has certainly been a creep, a censorship creep, especially in the arts. I mean, have you felt that more acutely or have you stoutly resisted it? I think I've been quite lucky in the arts, and, and I'll unpack that, but I, I think that New Zealand for a long time has been ultra-conservative, and, and we, we've never really, um, oh, in, in the art scene, and it's something we haven't really, we don't really accept or talk about enough. I, I think people think that, I mean, Taika Waititi, who, who I think is talented and fantastic and great, I heard him referred to as irreverent not that long ago. And I thought, I, I like him, he's great, but I wouldn't call that irreverent. That's not irreverent humour. Irreverent humour is dangerous humour. Irreverent humour is really taking a crack at the establishment and, and, and so forth. And he doesn't do that. Now, what he does is completely legitimate. But the fact that people would call him irreverent talks about where our line is in New Zealand, which I think is way more conservative. And that could be to do with government funding as well and the fact that, you know, they don't want to be, oh, I mean, actually we saw with someone poet who, who did the James Cook poem. There was a bit of a scandal around that because her poem was very offensive and, um, and it was funded by taxpayers, essentially, and people really sort of lost it. So there's probably something to do with that, which has kept us quite conservative. But so I, I don't think this is a new thing in New Zealand. I mean, we may... The comedy clubs and some of the comedians that you see working today, they tend to all sit on one side of the spectrum when it comes to politics and are in broad agreement, and they probably all have the same no-go zones and things like that. And I don't think that makes for a dynamic scene, but uh, we've always been pretty conservative here. Uh, mm. and, and I have been lucky because, I, I don't know, I just I've just got away with a lot more. Uh, even writing Find Me a Māori Bride, I mean, me, a Jew, uh, writing this you know, Māori comedy about some Māori guys trying to to find a wife. And uh, I mean, that was, it wasn't very PC or, or anything like that. And I got away with it. But then again, you know, I mean, that was five to seven years ago, the first one. Yeah. Uh, today. <laughs> That's exactly what I was going to ask. Would you get away with that today? Because I mean, I just wrote down here in his notes. I mean, I growing up. I mean, I used to watch the comedy of Billy T. James or MacPhail and Gadsby, things like Gliding On, all of those sorts of comedies that sort of poked fun at New Zealand, poked fun at ourselves, poked fun at what was going on around us, had lots of social commentary. I mean, I, I look at things, something like MacPhail and Gadsby, I mean, would they be able to even do half of the stuff that they used to do today? No, and for a very depressing reason too. I think that the networks would say, oh, they're just older people. They're older white men, you know, like let's do something a little, you know what I mean? Uh, there, there would be that kind of thing. It wouldn't even, it wouldn't even, and this is the problem with identitarianism, you know, it wouldn't even come down to the quality of what they're putting out there. It would be, you know, they're just, they're too old. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. It would probably be that kind of thing, you know. And also, too, I think satire has almost become verboten, too, because sometimes that's the whole thing with satire, is that you use a medium of satire and comedy to actually sort of gently nudge or prod at a unspoken truth that people sort of laugh at, but there is an underlying message. Well, in terms of those projects now, I mean, I actually watched live television last night for the first time in a long time, and my youngest son came in and he watched as well. He was stunned at the advertisements for the shows that were coming up on network television. And every single show was a reality show of one form or another. Mm. And he turned to me and he said, is this what people actually want to watch, Mum? Well, they are cheap to make. Uh, it really comes down to that. They, they, they're inexpensive. A lot of production companies, they're not artistic people running them. They're just people that want to make money. And you can make a lot of money in a production company. Like, like I worked for someone many years ago when I was getting into TV who was working in the minority space, like, you know, the Saturday morning where Attitude and, and, and different sort of magazine. Like magazine-style shows used to be on. Of, yeah. Yeah, that's the thing about minorities and so forth. Yeah. And, you know, there was one, she had got one series where she would make two two of these series a year and the budget was about $800,000 or something like that per time. So she's putting well over a million dollars through a company every year, making two of these, two series per year. You know, we looked at the numbers one day and like 350 people had seen an episode. Wow. Yeah. But because it was worthy, uh, they they kept it on the air. And she, and she did that for, I think, six years she was making that show. You know, you you end up with multiple properties out of that. In, six, in five years you could do, you know. I mean, there's a lot of money to be made. So these aren't, they're, they're entrepreneurial type people maybe, but they're not, you know, they want to maximise the, the the money they can make out of this stuff. And dramas and comedies are, are very expensive. It's a very expensive paint box, you know. Mm, it is. And it, of course, it is that, as you said, a double-edged sword, because we want to see ourselves on screen. You know, we want, as, as New Zealanders, it's great to see other New Zealanders. It's great to hear New Zealand stories, whether it be dramas or comedies or even reality TV. We want to see ourselves, but when it becomes too cost prohibitive, you know, who, who is going to, to foot the bill? I've certainly seen a move to then more print and more audio now for content because of those sort of cost constraints. But there's some really, really great quality work out there. And I know you've sort of pivoted in that space in plain sight. How did that come about? Because I'm loving the content that you have on there, the diversity of the writers. I've spoken to Karina Shields, which I know is a regular contributor. So tell us about plain sight and how that all sort of manifested itself. Plain sight is a blog which has done really well. I mean, it's one of those things where you don't know how well these things are going to do at all, do you? And you, and you, you start it and it either sinks, you know, and we knew that. when It was either going to sink within a couple of months or really take off. And and it really took off, you know. I mean, we have some weeks are stronger than others, obviously. It's It's been pretty consistent. The reason why I set it up, because I, I set it up with David Kuhlman, who was uh, also a board member of the F Free Speech Union. I've interviewed David here. 
Yeah, oh, yep, yep. Yeah. And, you know, member of the Jewish community like myself. Yeah. And um, so we're friends. We sort of started it out of frustration that whenever anti-Semitism or, or a, um, you know, MP says something outrageous and they're never really taken to task for it by our media. You know, I mean, there's possibly all sorts of explanations as to why that is. I was just having a thought the other day that the, the minorities that are protected are the ones that, that journalists feel would probably vote in their direction. I've always found that with anti-Semitism that mm. it's convenient to use when it scores political points back to an opponent, and I see both sides do it. Exactly but, right. But neither side will advocate. That's right. I think it becomes, but I think that happens with minorities a lot. And and I, I learned that at the Free Speech Union too, you know, this protection of minorities thing uh, and, and being the reason for free speech is, is not true. It's it's a thorny issue for minorities, but we can get into that later. I mean, I'd love to uh, discuss that. Yeah, we felt it wasn't being, being taken seriously. And then we thought, well, you know, I mean, we, we can write. Why don't we write our own pieces? And then we started talking about, you know, what would this blog be like? And, you know, are we going to just do that the whole time? We decided that it would be good to have a blog out there that was dedicated to these stories that, in fact, we, we even said that to, to, to writers when we did a group email to a whole lot of people we thought could, could be really good contributors. We said, write about anything, write about sport, you know, any sport, tiddlywinks, we don't care. But the only thing we ask of you, give us stuff that you think would never, ever be uh, published in any other platform. That's all it had to be. It can be left. It can be right. We don't care. It can be. It can be a review of a ballet. We don't care. We don't care. We did not care. We just said it's got to be content that you cannot imagine turning up on any other platform. That's the way to to fill a hole in in, in a media landscape is say, okay, what's what's not being done? And so we did that, and a lot of. Uh, gender critical feminists started inundating us <laughs> with pieces because they they don't get a get a fair shake in the media. Oh gosh, don't they want? Yeah, no. And and, and you know, Maori perspectives like Karina, uh, that, yeah, that Karina shares because um, you know, I mean, there's such a tight rein. People do not even realise the tight rein on representation of Maori out there. I, I think there's a lot of narratives around you know maori being in control and things like that it, it's not it's not no, it, it's, that's a particular interest of mine and i know it's one that i dive into with the show a lot because there yeah. are a lot of false narratives that are placed out there particularly around maori and maori yeah. as you said before with minorities are often the ones that end up being uh, used as a tool but never really advocated for that's you know right. so they're used that's to school right. political points and and that has been Māori Six Waste of Sunday. And there is a general, and I'm seeing it now with the divisions in Māori, and I know Karina and I have spoken about this. And, yeah, so I, I completely agree with you. There are, That's why I love what you're doing with Plain Sight because you are creating conversations that are not being allowed to be held well, anywhere well, else. Yeah, and and it's, non, it's non-partisan. I mean, if anything... We sort of would lean left in a way, but but see, left and right are, are tough labels for me because I, I still, being a sort of classic left wing, you know, guy from South Auckland, it, it's it's left and right are purely economic for me. Mm. 
You know what I mean? Cause, yes, but see, it's identity now, Dane. You've got to get with the 2020s, Dylan. Well, see, all that's... about identity classes yeah. so last century. Well, see, identitarianism for me is a sign that you're on the right, if anything. There's nothing actually traditionally left wing mm. about identitarianism. I mean, if you if you if you took the politics you, you see today and you know started preaching it in a trade union hall in old Papatoi in, in, in 1975, they would think you were an actual fascist. Mm. They they would they would think you were a, a swastika wearing, but they would really would not. They'd boot you out. It wouldn't fly at all, you know. But you know, there's journalists and people who are like, "Oh, what's this plain side? Oh, oh, it's this right wing blog. It's not right wing. I mean, that's just nuts. It's just crazy. It's all. But then it's all those like, are the labels, aren't they? That's all part of the identitarian shtick. I mean, yeah. everybody's got to have a label. Everyone's got to have a label, and it's like, well, if you don't broadly agree with, say, the government who we're, we've been told are, are left wing, then you must be right wing. It's like, well, it's just use your brain. Actually, analyze all these policies and really break them down, and you'll see that it's 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 not as clear cut. I mean, even even the current you know, like the current Labor government. I mean, they they can be left ish on some topics, but it's marginal compared to national. I mean, you know, the debate was on, but the first debate between Christopher Luxon and, and and Chris Hipkins and. I walked away thinking, well, both men probably feel okay about how it went and everything, but uh, I was depressed because it was like, they're sort of the same guy. That was exactly what I felt, so I watched it too. Again, <laughs> I watched it with my teenage son. <laughs> and he looked at it and he said, how on earth are you telling them apart? Uh, how do you do it? One's got hair. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. No? Uh, but the, one's got hair. And look, there are meaningful differences between the parties in a policy or two. Yeah. You know? That's where it came down. It was actually the final segment when they talked about environment because mm. they are essentially both on the same page here. Yeah. And in terms of creating some form of debate, they were literally getting down to the milking mice of the minutiae of how it is that they would implement whatever it was to get to the same goal. And at that point, I thought to myself, this is one of those moments where I thank myself for MMP mm. because that's really where I was at. I was thinking, gosh, you know, if you were an under, still an undecided voter, and there are plenty out there, if you were looking at that debate thinking, right, one of these Chris's going to sway me in one direction or another, I don't think either of them necessarily would. And at least you can cast your eye round and know that you can place your vote somewhere else and there is a, a possible likely, well, good, more than likely, good likelihood, depending on what you choose, that your voice will get some form of representation in the House. So, you know, with first past the post, imagine that if when it was still mm. first past the post. It's a terrifying thought. But then again, see, my my issue with MMP is, and Rodney Hyde actually um, said this to me, I, I did a... Um, uh, a documentary thing with him about 10, 12 years ago. And he said, the Greens are the luckiest party because they haven't been in power yet. So they haven't had the opportunity to disappoint their supporters. And he was right. Like all the small parties will under deliver. I mean, because they're going to be wed to one of the larger parties. That's a problem because, 
you're voting for certain certain things that they're promising that are just never going to happen, and we you know and we can be feel assured they're never going to happen. But it also means when you're in a small party, you can kind of say anything mm. because you know that and they do. And they do. And then you just say, well, hey, it's like, what can I do? I'm just the, the minnow here. There's a there's a shark next to me. You know, talk to the shark if you've got a problem. You know, I'm just a sprat. But, you know, the Māori Party under the National Party is a good example of they yeah. lost their identity a bit and, and really got crushed. And the Greens that are in now haven't really achieved m- much of anything, you know, compared to what their base would have wanted. I kind of think we still in a funny way, have first past the post. We did. We have had it for the last three years, in all intents and purposes, haven't we? Then look how that turned out. The scary thing for me is that a disengagement from the population with the process, because the process, I think, is really important. And one of the things that has stifled that process has been the ability to have complete open and free speech. So we end up cycling all the way back around again, don't we, to the importance of those conversations and being able to express those conversations in an open forum and the media, the traditional media, the legacy media was always that place where those ideas were aired and that does not seem to be fulfilling that mandate anymore and so therefore stations like this and blogs like Plain Sight are having to sort of fill a gap. Yeah, I mean, you know, you can't expect them to take every position on everything, to be fair to them. I think there are some really good reporters working. I know Mark Dolder may upset some people listening (laughs) to Reality Check, but he he is a diligent character and he's got his own beliefs, obviously, and but has been holding the government to account and and he does his work. He does the work. I don't care if I I don't agree with you, but if I can see you've done the work, uh, you've got my respect in that space because we're we're not all going to agree, you know? Mm. Uh, That's just that. But I I think the issue is there are some key important topics culturally and and socially that um, the media just will not will not touch or has just decided there's a very particular narrative it's going to tell and it just doesn't bend from that. And often, obviously, it reflects the political leanings or the ideological uh, beliefs of maybe the writers and management, you know. But here's the thing. This is the thing about free speech and censorship. Censorship doesn't work. Hmm. It doesn't work. Now, the best example we have of that recently, right, is Trevor Mallard at the parliamentary protests, instructing the media not to talk to anyone down there, right? Yeah. Little did he know that there was a film crew among the protesters who made basically the gone with the wind of protest films, you know, River of Freedom, which is like a two and a half hour opus yeah. that speaks to hundreds of people. And now they're traveling the country and screening it. Have uh, you seen all it? Over the place. I did a review of it for, mm. for Plain Sight. I did. I, I did a review of it p- for Plain Sight. I saw it on a big screen. I kind of cheated because I have a VR headset, and the VR headset has a big screen app, and I put on the headset, and I'm in a massive old classic theatre. If you know anything about VR, like perspective and everything is just mm. incredible. It works incredibly. I, I got to see it on this big screen in my living room. It's just incredible tech. And I 
you know, look, I was, I haven't been, I'm not fully on board with a lot of that stuff, with the protests, but I, I was definitely anti-mandates hmm. because I'm left-wing. It's like you don't take a person's job away. I mean, come on. I mean, John Minto, you know, he's a he's very much a stalwart of the left-wing movement, and he, he was the same. All, all the old Marxists in their 60s or whatever, they were all anti-mandate, all of them, because, you know, Matt McCartan would have been anti-mandate. Yeah, because, yeah. I mean, I found that really emotional watching yeah. it, and, and that's primarily because my husband has mandated out of his profession, so we've sort of started again in that respect. First time I've actually said that to listeners. Believe me, there's more to that story to come, but I can't share it now. So for us, that was really, really emotional. But I agree with you. See, the mandates for me was always the problem. It was all, and what yeah. I loved with the filmmakers, I think Gaylene made this and did this incredible job. It wasn't a partisan issue. And she showed the the length and breadth and depth of all the different people that were there and and how that they were affected around that that issue and it was just so beautifully shot and I'm so glad that the film was made and it's there on the record because I think up until that point there's been some actually great work done but up until that point really uh, the perception the public perception about what went on had been overwhelmingly negative. Yeah and, and see this is a problem with censorship because you know like I said Mallard Obviously, had no there. Was, there was no way you could have su suppressed something that the feeling and the the passion that a lot of those protesters had. You can't legislate that away. <laughs> That's not going to work. The other thing is that I think anyone with half a brain should have been able to work out that the more distance we we get from the pandemic, the more people are going to to really. You're going to see a lot of people change their minds. You're going to see a lot of people that were very pro the government change their minds on this stuff because we're out of the danger zone. I would say within about six months or even a year's time, the commonly held view will probably be that we didn't really need the lockdowns. Hmm. And that'll be around the world. You could argue that, well, yeah, that's because people, <laughs> you know, a lot of us have, you know, bad memories and, and, uh, and a forgetting we may have been, you know, quite freaked out at the time and may have been calling for it. But so you censor this stuff today, but then in six months' time, when different science comes through, when public mood has changed, people look back on the government and say, why did you silence us? Mm. You know? Well, I'm going to read you a quote, and, yeah. and it's something that I think – fits perfectly with this. I dug this quote out because I'm thinking, I've got a funny feeling that this is going to fit somewhere in the conversation that we <laughs> have. And, and you've just brought it up. And this is the quote, the totalitarian mass leaders base their propaganda on the correct psychological assumption that under such conditions, one could make people believe in the most fantastic statements one day and trust that if the next day they were given irrefutable proof of their falsehood, they would take refuge in cynicism. Instead of deserting the leaders who had lied to them, they would protest and they had known all along that the statement was a lie and they would admire the leaders for their superior tactical cleverness. Mm. And that is from Hannah Arendt, of course, the author of The Banality of Evil. That's why I think free speech is so utterly vital because 
when you've got a mass of people, as you said, over the length of time, as more time goes on and they get separated from the intensity of that propaganda, they will actually start looking at things a little bit differently. And as more information comes out about like yeah. beautiful films like this and and they can see what sort of happened. They're like, And I've spoken to many people that have said, I really had no idea. And it's like, well, no, because you weren't allowed to have any idea. And it took a lot of work to to find different voices and and different information if you wanted to seek another point of view. Yes. And all it's going to do finally is make people a lot more distrusting of power. Mm. And, And so it's an own goal. Censorship is an own goal, you know. It's short-term gain. Eleanor Catton, you know, who wrote The Luminaries and, and Burnham Wood is a new one. She was on RNZ and I'm basically with her on on this. She was it was quite I was quite surprised to hear this from her actually. But she because she she was a green supporter and very supportive of Jacinda Ardern when she came in. But after the protest, she said, Look, you know, you could have gone out there as Jacinda Ardern and said, I think you should get the vaccine. On the information I have, I really think you should get it. But if you don't want to get it, I'm not going to force you. I'm going to say you should. Her point was you have to make room for dissent and difference. Mm. You, the problem it, it, is, though, she did do that. And then 10 days later, she, she then forced people. Completely. Completely. And then Chris Hipkins the other day was saying, well, it's not, it's not forced. It, well, it, yes, it's, it was completely coercion. If you're losing your job. Mm. My son was uh, vaccinated. He um, was 21 at the time. He was under no danger. Yeah, and, yeah. you know, and he wasn't going to increase the spread to other people. Uh, look, you, you could have argued that, that health workers, you know, frontline health workers, maybe there was a an argument there that, you know, this was a very specific role and probably because of that. But even then, I think Graham Adams, I was having a conversation with a journalist who writes a lot for the platform, was saying, but even then you say, okay, well, would you like to work off the front line? Maybe we'll find something else for you to do if, if there were things for them to do behind the scenes, if that's the case. You know, like I think all effort should have been should have gone into to to keeping people working. Mm. Um but ultimately, what did it do? She'd deny this, her supporters would deny this, but it was a it was a nail in the coffin. Mm. Oh, for, absolutely. For her political career. Yeah, it, absolutely. It, you know, and and she can, and they can all run down the people that were there and everything. And some people were there probably for the wrong reasons, and I I totally understand that. But again, as you say, and as the documentary makes clear, it, it wasn't one type of person. It was just it was just as diverse as any community in in the country, and it became a town. Mm. <laughs> that's the other thing, hey. That like they actually, I just want to pivot to that because that's what struck me in that film. You know, I come from Otahuhu in South Auckland, and I remember when my town was like Kamal or, or, or a small town up north or something. You know, we had that, we had the league club that we'd go to and all that kind of stuff. We don't have communities like that necessarily anymore. And I think that a lot of people who were at that protest, right, they would have gone there for whatever reason. But what they found when they were there was a village. Yeah. They found a village. You could see that in the film. That was the interesting thing. And and I wish people in power would take note of that. You know, they saw people mucking in. They saw people helping out each other. You know, strangers were saying to each other, you need this? This guy's coming in. He's going to supply this. Oh, we need a trench. Let's dig a trench. 
we need toilets, let's do this. There would be people there that have been craving that sense of um, belonging in a community that we're losing in New Zealand. Mm, Because we've been taught and groomed to, if we need any of those things, to rely on the state. Well, yeah. And when I see, I mean, we're a similar age. So I grew up in a very, very small rural community. No one would ever consider waiting for the government to supply anything. If you wanted to, if the school, we had a small school pool, and this was back in the days when all New Zealand primary schools had a school pool and you Mm. were taught to swim at school. Where I grew up is in right up in the Raukuma Ranges. It was a lot cooler up there. It was very high elevation. So the amount of time to actually be able to swim was only really over that peak of the summer holiday. So there wasn't a lot of time. So what was happening was it was just simply too cold. So the way to fix that problem was to cover in the pool and build to help keep that space warm. So then we could have more time to teach the kids how to swim or teach us how to swim. The community got together, they fundraised, they did events, they all pulled things together, they built it. Mm. And it was the community that made it happen. It wasn't the Ministry of Education. They just looked at us and went, well, you, yeah, you do it. I don't think the contemporary politician really understands that need for co- for community. No. We don't need to be micromanaged by a government. We can look after ourselves. I mean, coming from South Auckland, I, you know, I've been going back there, obviously, and with my little charity thing with for young emerging comedy writers, I have got a new initiative where I have been basically teaching comedy to these younger people in South Auckland. You know, Labour is a... See, there's an irony here too, because Labour as a political party was set up for those people, really. They're just left alone. And they are sort of doing it themselves, you know? People are sort of mucking in themselves and getting things done themselves. Those communities are probably still still stronger. But basically, yeah, it's, it's like they're technocrats, you know. A lot of governments around the world are. National is a technocratic party as well as Labour, so, you know, let's not pick on Labour. And I think technocrats think that, like a lot of social engineers, you know, we're numbers on an Excel sheet. You can just take us out of one box and put us in another box and you'll arrive at a different total. Yeah. But no, we think, <laughs> you know, we have hearts. You know, we, we we have desires, we rebel. Uh, that's that's the way people are. You know, we're not as malleable as a lot of people try, you know, people in those echelons think we are. One thing that really got me in the debate was when they were talking about, well, I banned soft drinks in primary schools. Oh, oh, well, I'm going to ban it in high schools. It's like, oh, my goodness. Ban, ban, ban. Mm. Okay, talk to us about how bad sugar is and everything, and then just let people make up their own minds and get up. People will work it out, and if they don't, they don't. Look, you're talking to a libertarian here, so I'm just fully on board with all of that. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I'm I'm not going to certainly argue with that. Now, I want to dive into this new project in South Auckland that you're doing, because uh, you sent me a little clip to listen to, which I listened to, and I found utterly engaging and charming and delightful so tell us a little bit more about this project because it just it warms the cockles of our heart and I think as Kiwis we need to to remember there's some really good stuff going on out there in our communities it isn't all just doom and gloom oh no no it's not all doom and gloom like when you when you yeah when you get out on on the street and talk to people it's 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 great and going back to South Auckland has been important for me I think as an artist 
in a funny way, you never really leave your hometown. You know, like you sort of, you go back, a lot of your stories. I mean, the older I get, because, you know, I went through the whole phase of wanting to rebel against being a South Aucklander and, you know, try to recreate myself as someone from the inner city, Auckland and, and everything. But now I I, I go back because that's where all the characters are and that's where all the memories are. And I had, when I was a very young man, I, I was getting into quite a bit of trouble, actually, in, in South Auckland. I was, you know, running with gangs and, and getting into some, uh, you know, petty crime and, and all, all, all sorts of stuff like that, which is not an uncommon story, sadly, out there. Uh, I found the guitar and that really slowed my descent. But um, but but also some mentors, you know, when I when I got into because I got into acting first before I went behind the scenes. And a lot of people took a shine to me, people that, you know, flamboyant gay theatre directors who, I, you know, I didn't encounter too many of in South Auckland. <laughs> but they were like fathers and they really believed in me. And I'd think, well, if they believe in me, maybe I do have a bit of talent, you know. I owe those people so much. And so I thought that, you know, the day is going to come when I want to give back. And so I created this initiative and what it is, is it's using audio because audio is, I mean, the, the overheads are so low. It's just not cost prohibitive at all. You can sort of, you can set your audio story on a space station by just having a beeping sound in the background. You don't have to build a massive set. <laughs> you know, that's the difference. And so I went out there, I partnered with OMAC. I raised some money through Boosted uh, initially. Then I partnered with OMAC, the o Otara uh, Music and Arts Center. We brought some young people in. And we had the skeleton of a script, but then we I was wanting them to sort of contribute to them and, and do, do what we call a table, right? A comedy table. And a comedy table is literally a table and everyone's sitting around the table and punching up jokes. We Sometimes we call it a punch up where there might be a joke and someone says, hey, I, I could put a button on this joke by saying this. Oh, that makes a joke way, way, way better. So it's about making the strengthening the comedy and stuff and getting getting harvesting other gags and stuff and i learned a lot doing it because my i, I don't know if, if you're a practitioner sometimes you forget how you do it in, in a weird way it becomes a bit intuitive like sir john gilgood when when someone asked about his lovely voice they said you know what do you do and he goes well i just open my mouth <laughs> you know and speak but but yeah you do now after you know years and years of of training and everything and i thought oh, okay well you know this could be a bit slow going i might have to really give them a bit of a a hand here in, in terms of writing jokes but of course comedy really and this is what the lesson i took away from it yeah, you're, you're writing jokes, you're crafting jokes, but a lot of it is true life experiences. A lot of what I've put into the, my shows over the years have been, you know, characters I've met, people I've seen, little dialogue exchanges that happened that I'm just sort of pulling out of my memory bank and, and, and putting down as in scripts. Whenever we got to a bit of a block, I'd say to the kids, what would you do in this situation? Or have you been in a situation similar to this? And then the boy, um, we color his name as his Tongan boy. He was like, oh, this reminds me of my, when my friend did this, 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 and this. And it was a funny story. And I said, say that again. And I started typing it down. He's like, what are you doing? And I said, well, we're going to put it in. And he's like, but it's but it's not, it's not a joke. It's real life. And I was like, that's the point. Once they knew that that was legitimate, it all came out. You yeah. know? 
it had humor, it covered elements of religion, there was love, there was community. And then there were those little jokes. So one of the there was a little part, I think, that he was going across the harbor bridge and he was like, Oh, I'm a Tongan. You know, we like to have our feet firmly on the ground. I'm a big boy. I like to have my feet firmly on the ground. And I chuckled at that. You know, it just was those little little authenticities that just made it really engaging. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, I I I love that stuff too. And 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 it was like I say, exploiting their personalities, you know, just just saying, just be you. Mm. Be you and share who you are. And of course, Precolor is Tongan. Livian, the, the, the other um writer is Nuan. So it all went in there. Yeah, it's a good narrative. And we had, you know, Regan Roll, because another thing with this initiative is Regan Roll, who's um He's got a social media channel, Just The Norms. He's a big social media star. Because that's the other thing about the mainstream. We talk a good game on diversity, but no one's going into South Auckland to tell stories like this or create stories like this. And this amazing subculture of Maori and Polynesian urban comedians has sprouted up on YouTube and Instagram and, and, and different platforms like that who get numbers that would make Guy Williams look like just an ant. Yeah. Like, and, you know, no disrespect to to Guy, but Jimmy Jackson, I don't know if you, if you know of him, but he's got this great clip on YouTube called When the Poor Kid Stays at the Rich Kid's House. <laughs> so it's so a little skit about a few scenarios of a poor kid getting to stay at a rich kid's house, you know, which is something, you know, if you're from South Auckland, I've been there. I know, I know that feeling. It's, and, it, and it really struck me. 24 million views on YouTube. 24 million views on YouTube. That's that's Kevin Hart level stuff. Mm. It just shows you the power of that medium. I mean, we've just had, yep. you know, the singer in or Virginia, Oliver Anthony. Once people latch on to something and, and it resonates with them, particularly that authenticity. Yeah. It spreads like wildfire. And again, what you just described, like that comedy, one of the little elements I picked up with that again is the characters head across, headed across the harbour bridge and they saw the girls standing at the bus stop. It's like, oh, this is what it's like on the other side. You know, yeah. they're so beautiful. <laughs> it was just yeah. so funny. It was really, really, really quite funny. And actually there was a, the one, I actually wrote this line down because it was the one line that really made me laugh out loud. One of them said, oh, don't worry, they must be racist. And the other Garrett said, nah, it's just prejudice against stupid people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's the sort of thing that, it was just so beautifully done. The project now, so how, so you've pulled everyone together, they've done the, the writing, and I mean, there was a lot of Foley elements, there was sound, there would have been editing, there would have been mixing, obviously there's the, the voice performance. So how did you pull all that together? Well, OMAC, the Otara Music and Arts Centre, was a big part of that. They gave us the studios, obviously. Um, Regan, you know, our social media uh, star. And, and Cohen Holloway, who was in um, Hunt for the Wilder People, he he, he plays John Campbell as a cameo <laughs> in it. <laughs> he does a news thing because uh, he's he's a probably our preeminent impressionist of, of John Campbell. My son actually is a sound editor, so he did all the foley and everything like that. I'd like to do the next one I would love to record live with an actual old school Foley artist on stage and make it a ticketed event. I think that would be awesome because I want to keep doing these. 
But this one releases on September the 29th, so it's coming out. It's taken a while to come out because I am a perfectionist and thought we could remix it and do this and do that, and I've I got, a bit, got, got a bit carried away, to be honest with you, but I just love it, you know? And, and you know, I work on VR games, and, and you know, I, I get called into, you know, doctor big scripts and, and feature film scripts and things, but there's just something about a... a a gig like this where I'm not going to make a cent out of it <laughs> that I just love, you know, because that comedy table, the energy of a comedy table, to me, that's my happy place. If I could wake up every morning and just sit at a comedy table, because you laugh all day, that's all you do. You're there to make each other laugh. And that's your job for eight hours. Like I've been at comedy tables where if I ever have a professional comedy table, I bring Cohen Holloway along. Because the thing with the comedy table, and this is going to be a bit, this is going to get tougher in the, in, the, in, the, in the age of wokeness, but there's an unspoken rule at the comedy table that you are going to go too far. The humor is going to be rank. It's going to be devastating. You're going to be, oh, did I just hear that? Your ears should melt at those tables. You're going too far there so you can find the line and not go too far in the actual finished project. So it's very explorative and you're pushing, pushing, provoking, you know, just to just to create a sense of looseness and abandon. And I've been at comedy, ta- like, you know, Cohen is just the main offender. Like he, he's a guy at those tables where you just, you just get crushed. You're like, I, I, did I just hear what I heard? <laughs> You know, but I do worry now that people are going to bring cell phones in and record this and say, see, but to me, you know, you'd never judge someone about what happens in those rooms. That is my happy place. You you leave, your cheeks are sore, you can't breathe, you've had breathing issues all day from laughing. I mean, it's it's a fantastic thing. So so that's the the joy, you know, I want to cre- keep creating with these younger people around these tables, you know. And, and of course, the other practical thing is, you know, these these kids can can out like me on um, social media doing skits, but this is half hour, this comedy album. It's, it's a half hour narrative. And what I'm doing is I'm saying, okay, you can do a skit and you're fantastic at that. It's rough and ready. It's made on your phone. Everyone knows the the style and, and you know, I love that stuff. I, I watch it and laugh all the time. Okay, how do we take your ideas and add more meat on them to get it to half an hour? Because if we if they can do that, then they can knock on the door of Māori TV or or various production companies and say, "Look, I got this credit. I wrote on this comedy album. Here it is. It's half an hour. I can I can sit around a table. I can contribute to a table. I can do all those things. Would you employ me?" What I'm doing is set up to closely resemble the professional experience as much as possible because we just don't have enough of these urban young people in our industry. And there's reasons for that. A big reason is we're producer-driven. The producers I talked about earlier, Mm -hmm. you know, they're not going to jump in a car and go to South Auckland to find talent when they have people in Graylin who look like them, sound like them, that they sort of know socially, that they can collaborate with. And also, too, their body of work is quite small as well. So, I mean, in an industry where you don't, have you know the work is relatively finite the finance is finite you will tend to keep going fishing back in the same pond again and again and again when really actually you should go for you know fishing further afield 
There's a lot of that. And I think, and this is the thing about diversity and the issue I have with it, because, you know, we, we're talking this great game about diversity, but we're still ignoring these people. Hmm. Because we, you need to talk about class too. What happens often is they'll say, okay, look how great this is. This is a show by this person. Uh, diversity, diversity. Finally, someone's getting an opportunity. But the person could be in the inner city, you know, maybe a lawyer who's sort of, <laughs> you know, writing comedy for a while, you know, until they sort of give it up and go back to law. I mean, yeah, it's, it's that type of, it's often that type of person. They're very, they're all of one class. They're all of the same class. Yeah. What are they doing? For, and this is identitarianism again, you know, because they're, they're just making it very narrow to, are you Asian? Are you this? Are you that? They're ticking their boxes with with people from the inner city you know, that they know and, and who are safe. See, they're culturally similar. So they're safe. They know what they're going to get. Jimmy Jackson with the 24 million clips, they don't know what they're going to get. He could be dangerous. He could be hard to contain. He's a he's a provocateur. So they don't want to touch that guy. You know, they, they, they want the person that thinks like them, but who just looks a little different. We got to go into the, those communities because that's where, that's where actually the, the, the hungry audience is clearly too. They're the people prepared to watch 24 million, you know, views, to, to, to give an artist that many views. Yeah. And again, it's reflecting what we, you know, reflecting ourselves on television and, and or on any sort of medium. And I think that Taika Waititi, when he put out Boy, and I remember going to see Boy, and I laughed so hard because that part of the country was somewhere that I used to go when I was a kid. It hasn't changed. And the characters, all the characters that were there, I mean, I was at primary school a little bit earlier than that, but just, I, I mean, I laughed out loud because when that was written, it was actually surprisingly authentic. There was, a, you know, there was those co comedic elements there, but for someone like me, it was incredibly nostalgic and it was really wonderful to be able to laugh at those times in our lives. And it was sort of slightly edgy and dangerous. But even now, you're not seeing content like that much anymore. You have to really hunt out for it. It's um, it's hard to find. Yeah, yeah. It, it is hard to find. See, the other thing, I guess, about New Zealand work, which I think is really disappointing and strange, and, and I don't have a – it's not quite clear why things have, have worked out this way. In England and in America, they've worked out that working-class stories are popular and sell and people want to see them. Like train spotting from Scotland, mm. right? Was about a group of feral junkies. <laughs> it's, it's like we would never do that here. We would never do that here. A lot of the stories we tell, we seem to actively avoid those working class stories. Well, the Australians even do it though. I mean, oh, I well, they, it, well, well, the yeah, castle. Yeah, the castle is, you know, one of. <laughs> the greatest Australian films ever made. But The Castle yeah. did it, Strictly Ballroom did it, Muriel's yeah. Wedding did it, Priscilla did it. They all told stories of these different communities in such a way that were completely endearing. And re I, in fact, there was another one that was in that time, back in my first foray in radio, I used to, movie reviews was part of my gambit. And I remember reviewing an Australian film called Soft Fruit, if you'd ever seen, if you ever want to mm. giggle, that's hilarious. And the Australians do that comedy, that class-based comedy, yeah, brilliantly, brilliantly. And, and and we've never we've never really gone there. And, and I can hear people screaming at the 
at, at their phone or whatever. What about our outrageous fortune? But like, I know West Aucklanders. That was such a sanitized version of what West Auckland is. You know, they all look like just they were just Shortland Street actors. No disrespect there, but it's like that. that that's not the West Auckland I know. You know, the West Auckland I know were, were, were guys that look like Lemmy. <laughs> they were just from Motorhead, you know. I mean, it was an outrageous place. I it used to, when I was a young boy going to parties there, I was like, be careful, you know, this is where all the, the Lemmy lookalikes are and, they'll, you know, they'll rough you up. See, I'm just feeling a new show called The Tron coming on and, <laughs> and you can actually create your lemmings, your lemmings there. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Uh, but we've, we've never been good at that. We've never, mm. we've never, well, I don't know whether we're good at it or not. We've just never gone there. And, and it could be because a lot of the, I, I think a lot of the decision makers think that they have a, I mean, you see this in Māori broadcasting all the time. i gotta, I got to be honest about this, you know, working in Māori broadcasting. A lot of the people I work with at Māori TV are university educated Māori. You know, they're not, there weren't that many urban Māori there, actually. Um, well, well, I mean, you know, urban, but not South Aucklanders and people like that. They were mainly people who learned te reo at university and, and so forth. And they would often, like I even found with Find Me a Māori Bride, sometimes I'd get feedback saying, oh, let's not go there with this character. But I'd fight, you know, very hard because I knew these people were, were real because they were friends of mine and people I knew. But there's a sense that we have to protect the image of Māori. If the wrong type of image is, is let out there, that's going to lead to negative perceptions and so forth. I think you can really overthink that. At the end of the day, what you want to combat negative perceptions is you want diversity of representation of Māori. You want to see villains you want to see good guys. You want to see everything in between, you know. That's how you combat racism or negative perceptions. You just say, hey, there's a spectrum here, just like there is with anyone, you know, and yeah. and we're going to unashamedly present that. And I think viewers and listeners, you know authenticity. Yeah. And as long as it's authentic, then I think nothing should be off the table. Well, well that's right. That's right. Because again, it's going through the filter of a certain type of person from a certain type of background. The gatekeepers, that's the name for it. Gatekeeping. Mm. You know, it's, 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 it's a classic thing. I just think it means our, our industry. You know, there's, there's a narrative that we punch above our weight, but a lot of stuff that gets made today, you know, still, I, 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 there's a writer friend of mine, he, he said something which I found really, I, I thought it was perfect. He said he saw this New Zealand show recently and, and I said, what, are you, what did you think? He said it was as if 30 years of television hadn't happened. It was as if The Sopranos hadn't happened. It was as if, it was as if Breaking Bad hadn't happened, you know? Mm. Like that's that's what ends up happening. We just make things that sort of are broadly soapy, soap opera-y, and just aren't taking the risks that a lot of other people are taking now. Like TV has become riskier than feature film right now, like abroad with streaming and everything. I found that a lot of the watching that I'm doing, I find that I need to watch stuff that is essentially 10 years or older mm. in order to take away a lot of those filters. Because think about, I mean, has what has been made since the ending of Breaking Bad that you have just mentioned? My sons and husband love the show. I've watched bits and pieces in and out. And before we started this interview, I had my own fly moment. And if you've watched the 
<laughs> show, you'll know what I'm talking about. Yes. What has been made since then that is as as edgy as that? We are conservative. Mm. Smash Palace is one of our greatest films. The, the, the Film Commission never wanted to make that. They never wanted to make that. They never wanted to make Once a Warriors. They did not want to make that film. I am. Um, we showed that to our sons at the last school holidays. My husband yeah, my boys haven't it. seen it actually. My my, I need to sh- show it to them. I mean, that, that... tell you what, it stood up really well. Oh, Willie Tamahori is an amazing <sighs> director. Like it... you know, he had a very good Hollywood career for a reason. I was stunned because I, it's there's some really really challenging content there, and I yeah. have always found that film very very challenging because, as I said, I grew up in a small rural community on the east coast. There's a lot of truth there, and it can be quite confronting. And there was a lot of emotion. It still stirred up. I hadn't seen it since it was out initially. The storytelling is just as relevant today as when it was the day that it was made, and the boys were riveted. Absolutely riveted. You know, we then talked about at the end of the film, my husband and I, and we all sat around and, you know, discussed themes in the film. We discussed the themes around family violence and sexual assault and that social element of of trying to find where you're from, but struggling to actually create that connection. All those themes that were there. And that just shows you the power of the quality of a really good story and and an authentic story. Yeah, it's a test yeah. of time. Well, 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 a lot of the locations are were filmed in Otahu. That like my like the the big tavern that they are in used to be our food town at one point. Um, so uh, for me, it was like I, I even know some of the locations, you know. But no, I was very affected by it when I saw it as a young man. Um, I, I um, but but you know, they didn't not they did not want to make that film, and um, and and these are films that the Americans or the French or the or the English uh, would make a, a drop of a hat. See, what's sad about that is, you know, you just said that you had discussions. When, when it came out, there was a lot of discussion. That was a New Zealand film that led to a lot of discussion. It brought this really pressing topic into the into the consciousness in a way that we felt we could talk about it a lot more. So rather than negative perceptions, that film, I would say, probably helped thousands of people. I heard in, in France, you know, there, there was this um, domestic violence organization that was using it in their education. I, I would say that there'd be countless organizations that would be referring to it. Yeah. And, and we were able to have that conversation. So people need to be bolder because, you know, art can be ugly, you know. Uh, art should be a safe way for us to show our, you know, to to really show our ugliness so we can deal with it, so we can identify it and say, yes, that's true. I get it. I understand. What are we going to do about it? You know? Oh, absolutely. Those discussions can happen. Which then takes us all the way back. We cycle back around to the importance of uh, free speech. So for people who want to find out more about your work, where to find different things, uh, plainsight.nz is the blog. Yeah, and that's where the will, blog. Yep. And when, where are we, get, we going to find is – it, is it, I mean, I've just got it called The Dolphin on the clip that you sent me. Is that what it's going to be? Oh, no, it's, it's, it's called Night of the Dolphin. The Night of the Dolphin. Where, yeah, and, Night of the Dolphin. 
29th, you said. So where is that being released? Well, it's going to be on all streaming platforms. So I was actually thinking, how do I best, where do I direct people exactly? Because it's going to be everywhere. It's uh, distributed through a a distribution app called DistroKid. So it'll be on Spotify. It's not the Night of the Dolphin. It's Night of the Dolphin. If people were to go to my Twitter, which is at A-K-A Dane Giroux, Giroux is... G-I-R-A-U-D. I have a pinned tweet on that uh, on, on that account with a link to the Spotify. And you know, you can save that link and it'll release and it'll all be there, the the comedy album. I have a boxing combat sport MMA style podcast coming out in January too. So that'll be that'll be all over my socials as well. But yeah, no, I'm looking forward to this. Uh, we do have a um, new FM out in um, South Auckland is going to run it as well. They're going to house the album. What I'm going to do as well is send emails to every uh, production company and the broadcasters and platforms and say, really consider these kids. They've done great work here. They should be in your plans. These are future stars. And then do it all over again because I had such a great time doing it. Oh, no, you can definitely tell that it was loads of fun. Hey, look, this has been – see, I knew – I'm so glad that we finally got this conversation yeah. on the record, as it were. We've been dancing around for such a long time to get this to make this happen. Yes. So I've, it's been such a joy to t- talk to you today. This yes. has been Dangero from the Plainsight blog, plus many other things. Still more great content here to come, though, on Counterculture. Marty will be along next with Media Matters, and then, of course, we'll have the work News of the Week. Welcome back to Counterculture, and as suspected, I knew Dane and I will have a lot to talk about. As I mentioned, I have been fortunate enough to hear Night of the Dolphin. It's witty, funny, and utterly charming, so do listen when it's released. Dane's co-founder on the Plainsight blog is Dr. David Cooman, who I interviewed way back in early June. You can find this replay easily on our new RCR app. Just download the app and put in Cooman in the search bar, and it will come up for you. Thanks for tuning in to RCR, Reality Check Radio. If you like what you're listening to, or even if you don't agree with what you're listening to, then get in touch with us now. You can text us with your message to 2057, that's 2057. Or if you'd rather email us, you can at inbox at realitycheck.radio. We would love to hear from you, so get in touch with us now. Welcome back to Counterculture here with Marie on Reality Check Radio. And one of my all-time favorite guests is back this morning. And she's got a cup of tea. I've got my coffee. We're ready for a good old girly catch-up. And that is Helen Houghton, leader of the New Conservative Party. Morning, Helen. Morning, Marie. I absolutely love coming on your show. I mean, obviously I like your other hosts as well, but you know, you're one of my favorites too. It's um just really nice to be here. So I know we can chat about all sorts of really cool things and there's no um, limit. Thank you. No, it's lovely and relaxing. You're a neat chat with Rodney too the other day. So if you haven't caught that, make sure you download the new app, people, and go to Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. And um, you did a speed dating with Rodney as part of his political speed dating series. So uh, catch that. But no, it's pointy end now, isn't it? It's sort of all getting pretty frenetic. So I appreciate you coming on and you and I having a cuppa and a catch-up. How's it going? Crazy, crazy, crazy. So, you know, last night, late last night, I was in a debate this morning just before you. I was live on Radio Rima. Uh, two days ago, I was in Auckland. 
for the day and, you know, weekend, the few days before that I was travelling Nelson and Blenheim. It's just every day there's interviews or debates, uh, sometimes two to three on a day. Absolutely crazy. So this weekend I'm uh, recording some ads for TV and then I've got a TV news news interview. Amazing. Next week. So we'll see how that goes. But um, fortunately they are going to cover some of the smaller parties that they haven't covered yet. Fancy that. I think this is just it. There is definitely, I think we talked about this last time, there's definitely a, a mood of change out there. Mm. I mean, are you still getting that feeling when you're out and about talking to people? and you're really Absolutely. Further, further, yeah, absolutely, further. Marie. And I think that's probably why they're reaching out as well, because they know, you know, how what's the percent of people that have stopped watching or listening to uh, mainstream media? They have to capture them again. And to do that, you know, they have to actually be addressing the fact that they're not covering everybody in the society who wants to hear from all of the views out there instead of that one source of truth. Kudos to them, but we'll see how we go with the interview and, you know, the questioning. We'll see. But, um, yeah, I'm sure we can chat about it next time, Marie, if we get a chance after we view what they cover and how much of it they do put on the news of my well, interview. And I think you're right because, I mean, the polls, uh, I mean, it feels like there's a lot more polling this time, but the polls mm. have definitely shown that the percentage of New Zealand voters that are looking elsewhere for a vote in, in one of the parties that are outside those top, particularly the top two and even the top four, is a, a significant proportion. And, you know, that's a big chunk of the electorate nationwide. So yeah, it is good. And we know this too, just with what we're having here at RCR, the, the numbers that we're seeing coming through digitally with us, it's people are engaging, they're wanting to engage with news and the process and debate and discussion, but they're not going back to those yeah more traditional sources. So, you know, we, we're certainly very appreciative of that. It sounds like a busy old time for you. How's the education? Because of course, you and I like to talk about this. You're one of the leading lights in regards to highlighting some of the issues around the REC situation mm. within education. I feel like in this campaign so far, Helen, that crime and the cost of living has kind of overshadowed some of the serious concerns that there are in education and a lot of very, very poor policy and curriculum decisions are just being let to run rife in a way. Is that a feeling that you're getting? Uh, yeah, obviously with the, the government, however, the smaller parties, I mean, we're all talking about it. With the education, probably since last time I've spoken to you, I have been in numerous uh, meetings and they're not the general public meetings that I would or that a politician would put on. They're actually, these meetings have been put on for me across, um, across Canterbury, for example, around uh, parents. So there's a whole groups of parents who are coming together. I've been going out to the meetings already planned and I just turn up and, and they want to hear about what's happening in education. So while you don't have the mainstream media or or the main parties talking about it, the communities are. And I think that's huge. And, and I think we'll be in for a bit of a shock come voting. You may not see it all on the polls, but People are talking and they are doing their own research and they're really showing, you know, that critical thinking that they've, we talked about before. They've switched off mainstream media. Okay, for an example, the leaders' debate. Do you know, I turned it on <laughs> and 
five minutes later, I turned it off. Because what you just said, you know, they're not discussing the the reality. It's it's all about, oh, what one Chris isn't doing right, the other Chris is, you know, and they're just attacking each other. And it's like the public don't care about the Chris's. It's like they actually care about the real issues that are going on that are affecting us, that are affecting our children, our well-being. You know, we're all suffering. It's not It's not just restricted to some sections of society. Everyone is finding it hard. So if you've got people who, you know, married couples who are working and are struggling, imagine then those who are at that scale that's always struggling. Imagine how they're surviving. And yet those things aren't talked about. You know, we've got two guys on TV, you know, it's all about them. So, yeah, that's quite frustrating. So I was really disinterested in hearing anything that they had to say after that. I talked to Paul about it briefly, the breakfast the following day. What totally blew me away was the sameness between Mm. them. There was not really, if you were wanting to vote for change, change is not going to happen by voting from red to blue or blue to red. To me, it was same shit, different day with a pair of them, to be brutally honest. And it was semantics over what the differences were. They had more in common than they had indifference. And I think the voting public is seeing that. I think you're right, that there will be a uh, a surprise. I called that with Marty the other day. I think that there is going to be some surprises thrown up. And I think it will send a very, very clear message this cycle that Kiwis are looking for something different. So the interesting thing will be for the next election cycle is whether or not there will be a coalescing of those parties around single ideas and a a cooperation. I know you've been working very hard to try and do that this time around, but I think the intent is now there, isn't it? I, I think you're right. A lot of people were like kind of trying to force the issue oh, everybody join together and everyone do that. I think it was really unrealistic to expect that that would happen easily and overnight like that. And those sorts of things take time. On my travels recently, banged into a, yeah, I've I've banged into a few leaders recently on my travels campaigning and we've had really good conversations and I think this is what the public need to appreciate, that all the leaders want to do the right thing by the people, but you have to appreciate that we've also gone in here for different reasons and it will take time to to get those leaders together and actually have conversations without that pressure of people thinking that you can just all join together and it's going to be a happy happy family no we need to work together and like you said maybe the next election you know we'll have a lot more opportunity to go back and forward and to a vote and I think that's important who would want all of us getting together and then getting into parliament and then we crash because we haven't actually built up that really good working relationship so yeah watch this space for next Mm. election but look anything's still possible and yeah we'll just have to see what happens there so these meetings, these meetings that these parents have been con- calling and that you've been going to, what are the concerns that these parents are talking about at the meetings? What's the issues that they're raising? Still the sex ed, huge, hugely concerned. You know, that's when I share anything politically, the most engagement that we get is when we talk about the sex and the gender. Mm. Really, you know, I mean, yes, we know about the cost of living. We're all struggling. But at the end of the day, If you're a parent, what matters the most to you is your children or your grandchildren. So every parent, those who know about it, are up in arms and jolly good. I'm blessed that I've been able to be in that space. 
it's a great feeling after four years of, you know, being one of the first educators to come out of the education sector and bite it, at that time being the pariah in the school where I had colleagues who would say to me, you know, Helen, I really respect you, but I don't believe this is happening, to now four years later, everybody's freaking out about it, you know, and there's so many good teachers who have left because of it instead of standing up and saying no. You know, I would like to know who's in the Ministry of Education. We need to have these conversations. Who's directing this stuff? And and we're not finished yet. We've got heaps to do. Trust me, there's things happening. So since we last talked, talked to a few people, are you aware of the, you you probably know the gender resist, what are Mm. they, resist gender Mm. education group? Yeah, Marg, but also there's another lady. She put out a a complaint to the teaching council and a group of us teachers signed it. So what happened there was after that, I went on, I think it was a platform and had a wee chat, and then they brought on Leslie Hoskin, who's the CEO of the teaching council, and she tried to say, you know, this isn't happening and, you know, no, we don't tell teachers to use other pronouns and all of this stuff. Anyway, it was a complete fabrication. It caused me to come on the next day to actually say, no, she's wrong. But during her interview, she tried to say that she had reached out to new conservatives to have a chat about all of this. You know, so clearly she's been listening to new conservative talking about all of this stuff and it alarmed her enough to bring her out, you know, of her office and go on public to talk about it. So I think that's massive success, Marie, because we've brought them out and they have to now address it. And that's because little people like us are actually saying no and standing up for it. What happened there, though, is, like I said, she tried to say that she's reached out to us. Now, they're reaching out to us. All I received was an email, and in that email was a letter saying why they deregistered the teacher and the justification around that. So I responded to that, and I said I would really like to uh, have a conversation with Leslie Hoskin, a one-to-one chat about what the issues are. The response I received was this. Leslie has has received your request and she will get back to you in due time. Now, this is months ago. Mm. Nothing, absolutely nothing. However, we have had a response from the, the letter of complaint that Resist Gender Education put up that we all signed. They have responded finally. They've given us an answer. And basically they are passing the ball, okay? They're saying that it's not them, it's not them, it's the uh, tribunal. And if you look into all the details about who the tribunal are, it's like one ex-teacher, you've got a lawyer, and I think there was somebody else, there's like three people on a panel that get to decide whether a teacher is striped off or not. Three people make that decision, and so the teaching council are trying to pass the buck onto the tribunal. <laughs> and yet it's the teaching council directions that, you know, it's not like we're ticked off, but that's what the principal or school leaders go through to see if you are going to reach that uh, registration next time. And they say what they're saying, the teaching council are saying, is that it's not enforced. They're saying it's a guidance I mean, come on, These, <laughs> this guidance is actually what we are critiqued on. And if we are not doing this, this and this, and that will depend on what kind of school you're in. So if they're yeah. a really pro, you know, rainbow tick school, fully embrace out, you're out. And, well, so, and so your teaching registration gets decided on, you know, depending on, yeah. 
Yeah, so, I mean, they're, the they're weaponizing that tribunal, which is exactly what they've gone and done in the health sector. They've weaponized the mm. medical council, they've weaponized the nursing boards and the midwifery councils in order to horizontally police their members. What you're describing is exactly the same thing. There is that, gosh, you know, if you were a teacher and you held gender critical views, it must be just an absolute minefield, particularly if you've been a longstanding teacher within a school environment that all of a sudden has become very permissive of these views. Where do you go? I mean, you, you've got work and teachers and a body of work, and then you're just literally feeling trapped, wouldn't you? I think it'd be awful. Uh, are you right? And this is what I mean. There's many teachers who have left. Great teachers, great educators have left rather than address it because it's such a big thing, right? It's such a beast in the ministry. It's like, who's directing it? So we need to unpack all that and mm. find out under the covers who's actually doing this. And that's what I'm going to be pushing for really yeah. soon, trust me. So we need to do that because we're losing those long-standing teachers who, you know, no wonder education's failing because the great teachers are leaving. Those who have been doing an incredible job for decades are walking out because they cannot stand this woke, this nonsense that they know is, is wrong. You know, I'm a little bit cross because it's like, well, come on, guys, you know that what I started, why are you not all getting on board this? There are a few now, which is good, but there's also school leaders who are struggling because they're being forced. So, yeah, it's, it's like we have to actually go to the root and mm. rip out that cancer because mm. it's impacting schools everywhere, Christian schools as well. Yeah. Every school is impacting. Now, can I just divert only a tiny little bit? I know you're of the host. No. <laughs> you divert away, Helen. You divert it's away. It's just this is something really important to the listeners, and it's huge because have you heard about the book, the book, the controversial sex education book? Is this the one it's that's got targeted the, at eleven year olds? That's got um, yeah, it's got that explicit oh. sexual. It's like pornography. It's filth, right? Yeah. I don't know whether you've heard, but recently this is in the newspaper that they're going to potentially pull it from the library. But what what I want your listeners to know is this is something really important that they can do. The article is in the Star News, and the heading is "Controversial Sex Education Book Could Be Pulled from the Library." It's by Daniel Alvey. Alvey, and what it's saying is, have your say. Do you think this book should be available in the district's libraries? Send your views in two hundred words or less to Daniel at Star Media Kiwi. So I would encourage everyone listening now to go and send away your thoughts about this book that's called Welcome to Sex, which is completely pornographic. Do you know, I don't know how much you know about it, but there's a lecturer at Canterbury University who actually thinks it's a fabulous parenting tool. I mean, what the heck is she thinking? Is she even a parent? My gosh, Marie, I'd like to get some of these people in, in a room and just work out what the heck's in their head. She may have these thoughts, but you don't get to tell everybody, every section of society, all families, all parents, that, that, that just because you think it's okay, that we should all be this liberal and allow our children to be so sexualized at a young age. How dare they? Oh, mm, the makes me very cross. One of the things doing this job 
is this was sort of an element, an avenue that I was sort of blissfully unaware of as a parent. And I've spoken to some incredible people, you know, like yourself, like Mark Gurno. Just recently, I've spoken to the like of Ali Marie Diamond and Gloria Masters and Denise Ritchie. There's just so many women, Helen Taylor just recently from Exodus Cry. And I've got actually booked uh, later in the month, a young man from Australia called Daniel Prince P, which we got uh, recommended by Ali Marie. And these are all people working in this space. And I, I'm actually embarrassed to admit how unaware I was and actually how perversive a lot of this information is as part of the overall ideology and the damage it's causing with uh, the mental health of our young people. It really is applying pressure to them, which is creating anxieties and Mm. affecting their relationships. It's really quite concerning. You're right. And they all think it's tickety-boo and progressive and wonderful. Yeah, I mean, what happened to safeguarding children? Mm. What the heck happened? I get so cross, and I will continue this fight until we actually have some better protections around children. Yeah, and especially when you think about a school who are supposed to be trusted, you know, they've got a duty to provide safe learning spaces, and yet the um, ones pushing this, the extremists that are pushing it, are using that as saying that, you know, we're not providing those safe spaces for particular sections of society. So in terms of the education department at the moment, I mean, you've got a minister, well, you know, we all know, I mean, good grief, can you oh, spell a name? Don't, don't, yeah, anyway, you better not, like, yeah, you no, better not get started there. on that. Um, so the likelihood is that she will no, no, no longer be the minister, minister. However, you are dealing with a body of people that will not be changing. And I know mm. leadership is important, but it's not everything. So I'm assuming that once the campaign is over, your advocacy work in this space will continue. If there is a change of government, it's looking likely that new conservative won't be in that tent, but your ability to advocate will be. How are those major parties looking? What's Nationals policy, X policy around this gender education within a department? Is there going to be an ability to roll this back? Or are they just sort of doing monkey see, monkey do, and just hoping it'll all disappear and let them carry on as normal? Yeah, monkey see, monkey, whatever. Look, I approached a national candidate earlier on this year and they told me because I had this citizens initiative referendum and they told me they were happy with the system what you know the way things were at that time there's no focus like you even heard Chris talking recently about you know why people some of these leaders talking about transgenders in the toilets saying it's not concerning well it is and you know we're all talking about it the same as the education stuff it's like they've got blinkers on or something. But, yeah, you're right. Look, like I said before, we've brought out Lizzie Hoskin, the CEO, and to me that's a huge win. So everything that we've been doing, and this is outside of Parliament, you have got other leaders now from those smaller parties are all talking about this where they weren't before. So for four years, over four years, I've been talking about it. And, okay, just an election year, I have to say, some of these other leaders are bringing it up now, which is a bit... A bit disappointing that they haven't been on board the whole time. However, it's great to see so many people talking about it because we do. We need everybody talking about it. So I think if we can do this much outside of Parliament, imagine how much more we will do inside. But, yeah, you're right. In three weeks' time, to be honest, 
I, I never went into politics thinking I was going to be a leader of the party. It was purely fighting this education stuff. So the role that I've had, the workload has been tremendous. And it's not that I'm dropping the ball on that stuff, but I know that that's just been simmering. So watch out, I tell you. Watch out in three weeks' time, Marie, because I will have time to go back to that initial thing and, yeah, it's got, I'm going to blow it up big time, especially now that <laughs> it's being talked about so much. So I've got a few things up my sleeve, which I will be doing in, yeah, just over three weeks. Awesome. Watch this space. Um, I will continue that advocacy in a huge way. So I'm going to the next stage now. Yeah. yeah. Oh, look, we can't wait to see that. And with any luck, we'll sneak one more cuppa in a chat in before we get to yeah. um, October 14. That would because I always nice. appreciate that. Now, before we disappear, Helen, did you get up to Auckland for the rally in front of it was it St. Patrick's Square on the day that uh, the the soup thrower here didn't turn up to court was did not appear. So were you there? Did you go to the rally? Speak up for what stand oh, up. Oh, Marie, uh, Marie, I I ran up there. Basically, I was not going to miss that. Yes, I booked my ticket way back as soon as I heard that she was coming back. But even when we found out that um, Posey Parker wasn't going to come, I thought that well, that's actually even more reason to do it to show that for her and her family to think that New Zealand is such a fearful place to be, for her to come and speak is even more reason that I went there to speak. So I got to speak. It was fantastic because clearly I was at the Auckland one way back when the juice thrower was there and I was on the rotunda, so I saw all that disgusting behaviour. So this time it was a little bit of a smaller group for both both sides, so you had the anti-woman people there as well. It was a better space, though, because you had a real good break where the anti-woman people couldn't actually come up and take over our space, which was great. And the police presence was fantastic. It really was, I have to say. There may have been 40-ish police there. It was wonderful. And you could see it at one particular time. So when we started talking, we were surrounded by all about all the people wanting to hear us, which was great. But you could hear the anti-woman people, the noise that um, they were trying to drown us out. At one moment, I saw the line of police just Apparently there was a scuffle when they were trying to, you know, they were getting really triggered by what we were saying. And so the police kind of moved over there and, you know, made sure that they were contained in their space. But they were loud. However, it didn't drown us out and we achieved success. All of us women got to speak. It was absolutely incredible. The support from men, we had a lot of men there supporting us. And so a big shout out to you guys who are there. We love our guys in New Zealand that support the woman, the um, biological woman. So it was such a good day, a great opportunity, Marie. And um, yeah, like I said, as well as the advocacy for education, I'm going to advocate for our woman. And I'm not going to stop until our Ministry for Women, and yet again, that's the same one as the Education Minister, uh, until they have uh, sex-based rights at the top of their priorities, we will not stop. There you go. It's great to be there. I know I asked Dylandy about the Ministry of Women a while ago, and she's like, they've sold out. I mean, what's the point of having a ministry for women when you've got a leader that doesn't even know what a woman is and they're not there? <sighs> to me, it is just paying lip service, isn't it, to women, and it's wrong. You don't hear a boo. You know, why is that? We had so many women there, and we're not, you know, we just ignored. It's absolutely crazy. They, um, We did see a little bit of media there. However, unfortunately, they were more, they covered the anti-woman, 
and didn't come over and listen to what we had to say, which is really unfortunate, but I'm sure we'll get an opportunity to speak at some point. So thank you for listening to that. Uh, thank you for talking about it today because it is a huge thing. 130 years since women got the vote it had only happened two days before. And so, you know, on the news, they said that we've come a long way. But I put out to the uh, people watching on that day, I said, have we really come a long way when we cannot speak in a public space without being vilified? We'll keep talking. Oh, absolutely. Oh, thank you for filling me in on that. That was great. Hey, look, this is Helen Houghton, leader of the New Conservative Party here on Countercultural. With Marie here on Reality Check Radio. Don't disappear. There's still more great content here to come, as always, including Media Matters and Woke News of the Week. Thanks, Helen. This is Counterculture here with Marie, and it is always good to catch up with Helen, and I will stay on the progression of RSC in our schools. If you have any feedback about this interview, email me to inbox at realitycheck.radio or text to 2057. The greatest threat to our democracy and our country is the belief that someone else will save it. RCR is on a mission to revive honest media, and now you too can help make that happen. Introducing the Foundation Members Club, the easiest way to support RCR and be rewarded for doing so. Receive exclusive benefits only for members, including your very own backstage pass to join the hosts for interactive behind-the-scenes discussions. And also our all-new daily curated news summary, RCR Bytes, delivered to your email inbox every morning, keeping you on the pulse of the news that matters in just a few minutes per day. To find out more, visit realitycheck.radio slash members and see how you too can join the mission that's making a difference. You're with Counterculture here on Reality Check Radio with Marie and as we always do, this time of the day, I am joined by Marty Gibson for Media Matters. Good morning, Marty. How are you doing? Great to be here. Yeah, it is good to be here. It's great to, you know, another, we've got another week under our belts. And I know we've said this every week, but certainly every week it definitely feels soggier and squidgier as we're getting closer to the election. Where you and I yesterday were on Breakfast with Paul, we did a little pop-up panel with mm. Cam and Paul, and there seems to be a lot more polling this year. And do you think yeah. with these all these polls, it's a case of, that whole what is the definition of insanity doing the same thing over and over again and hoping for a different result do you actually think that there's a level of disbelief out there from those in certain sectors that the wheels have come off the bus it is careering down the hill and there there's about to be carnage i mean there's just more and more of a disconnect more and more ga- i mean you know gaslighting i know it gets chucked around but it is a representation of a reality that doesn't exist and it's across media, it's across the government, it's across the medical council. There's this insistence. And as I said it last week, hey, nobody talks, everyone walks. You know, they really don't want this emerging series of uncomfortable facts to get out there. For them, that's embodied in New Zealand first. Mm. You know, and there's always argument in the freedom movement about, you know, whether he's along for the ride. I, I actually cut him some slack in that direction, him, Shane Jones, and certainly some of those candidates that New Zealand is going to have to vote New Zealand first up over 10% or 11% to get. And I think that, you know, they've been put there deliberately like that. They really don't want them to get into parliament and start saying their piece. The fact that there is that patronizing insistence on 
cutting out voices. We're discussing the papers before we came on, and and there is a fair bit of that, isn't there, this oh, there's week? A, there's a massive amount of that this week. So, there, again, things that we noticed, the PR departments have really ramped up to another level for Labour this week, and for National to a, a lesser degree, and there was lots of sort of, you know, Chippy's going to visit here and and this is going to happen, um, this is what's happening in this region. And ultimately, all I am seeing is a disengagement from the general voting public of this country with both our main leaders. The polls show that, the preferred Prime Minister numbers, you know, I mean, Luxon has now crept ahead, but they're not brilliant. Neither of those Chris's set anybody's world on fire. Yeah, I guess I'll have the big giant douche. I don't really want a turd sandwich. Mm, pretty much. <laughs> you get these incredible things. I mean, I find Vernon Smalls, you know, journalist and former advisor to Labour Party Minister David Parker, I find reading his stuff a bit like eating raw rolled oats. He had one line in his column, which was entitled, The Minister for Flying Nun Should Note There Is Some Distortion in New Zealand, which doesn't really sort of, but he, he was talking about how the economy had grown a robust 0.9% in the June quarter. And one of his lines was, if our economy is as bog-awful as National pretends, the rating agencies would not have retained the country's AAA ratings, and Moody's would not have described the government's fiscal position as healthy compared to that of peers. It's worth saying again, these are the rating agencies that caused America's housing crisis because they kept waving through these financial organizations that were financially upside down because they were connected with them. And I wouldn't be surprised if their connection to the people who are printing this $100 billion debt gives them some incentive to say, oh, it's okay, Robert is doing a fantastic job. Yeah, don't worry. Don't worry. This is, you know, Mrs. Bouquet, not passing a bucket because that's what it really is. It is just keeping up appearances. That kind of leads into Stephen Joyce, because Stephen Joyce's opinion piece was the complete antithesis to Vernon Small. Yeah. The complete antithesis. And it was on essentially that, on the GDP. And if anybody is going to know this, it would be him. He, I think, is one of the more effective financial ministers that we've had in the modern era. And he said here this week's GDP number, which relates to economic activity for the three months to June, didn't disappoint. On the face of it, there was something for everybody, a slightly better than expected 0.9% in the quarter, which suited the narrative for the left, but a pretty poor performance over the last nine months, which suited the right, and an almost universal expectation from economists of tougher times ahead, which probably suits no one. Irrespective of a number of parsing, the truth is in economic terms, we are dragging along the bottom. If this is what success looks like, then the current government is lending new meaning to the tyranny of low expectations. And in a stubborn and possibly worsening inflation as a result of recent fuel prices and the accompanying high mortgage rates, there is little wonder people are feeling very squeezed as we approach the election and very actively considering a new government. Yeah. I mean, he... he, I always see him tiptoeing up to the edge, but, you know, he wants to stay in within the narrative. You know, he doesn't want to step too far out Overton's window. But what I'm seeing in all, I mean, he says increased spending has achieved bugger all, and who doesn't think they could spend their own money a little more sensibly than this government seems to? 
we do need to get debt down and we are overdue to focus on the quality of spending rather than the quantity. However, just doing that, although a big enough task in its own right, will be insufficient. Both approaches don't place enough emphasis on the psyche of the country's economic actors. The businesses, the entrepreneurs, the farmers, the innovators, the risk takers. The only way out of a flatlining economy with high inflation is to grow the growth engine. And that means encouraging this group to invest and grow here in New Zealand. And that's not as easy as it sounds. But he kind of leaves off there. And what I think he hasn't gone into, because it's a huge topic, is that we've lived even well before this current group of Marxist student politicians were given the keys to the country. We've lived with this assumption of equity and these Marxist ideas that everyone's the same. We're at a stage now where that's resulted in basically just the degradation of everything. And, you know, we've talked before about those intangibles are difficult to measure, you know, like in the prefu, they didn't have anything about what effect the just blossoming crime rates, you know, increasing by 800% have on us as a high trust society that you need in order to have a wealthy, thriving, enterprising society. And because we've gone past that, we need an approach that's completely different and no one's really able to quite get there. But I was looking, you know, I spent the weekend in Gisborne and man, you know, there's a lot of people shuffling around. And, you know, when you think that the average mortgage is increased by $1,000 a month, the average mortgage, people are so incredibly squeezed. We're at a point now where we need to have systems for functional families to become more functional with an aim to grouping up with other functional families and eventually then maybe mentoring between eight families, one that's struggling. But we need to crystallize out high performance, and that's the antithesis of this. Mm. Everyone's the same. Well, it's funny you should mention that. So last night I'm in the middle of reading a book called The Sad Guide to Happiness, and it's written by Gad Sad. So if anyone doesn't know Gad Sad, he is a professor from Concordia University. He's uh, one of Joe Rogan's actually most frequent guests. If you've never seen him, he's brilliant and funny and entertaining Mm. and he is a really good commentator of the human condition and he has written i've mentioned his books before i've quoted from the parasitic mind which he wrote a few years back and his new book is literally just about to be launched any day now here in new zealand and so i've got an advanced copy and i was reading it last night because i'm going to be talking to him in a few weeks yeah i know i'm very excited anywho in one of the passages last night it was talking about the interesting aspect of human nature and the decisions that we make with the communities around us and how that can affect our happiness. And he gave the example that if you had a person and you were wanting to offer them uh, opportunity, they had a free reign and decision with them and a colleague, and you had two options. So this is in terms of measuring potential financial happiness. And option A was they were able to approve a $600 a week pay rise for themselves and their colleague got an $800 pay rise. Or option B is they both got a $500 pay rise equally. And he said in experiment, people will almost always select option B even though it leaves both parties worse off because the default that we have is on equity and fairness when Mm. actually the benefit is in the other option and they won't select the most beneficial option in order to select 
the equitable option. Yeah, I mean, and that's almost a childish way of being, that if you do the work, if you spend a bit of time in the fetal position on the ground realising what a terrible, terrible human you are, uh, you can outgrow it. And the problem is that we've had governments where it doesn't suit people outgrowing it. No. You know, I've, I've said before, you know, when you realize I've just been eating too many pies and uh, I've let myself go, I'm going to start exercising. And you get out there and there's a little voice in your head that says, oh, this is so unfair. It almost feels like I'm being injured. Who's telling me that my body's not fine the way it is? This is so unfair. And you've just got to see that voice as being external to you and an enemy. And you've got to almost, as the same if you're stopping smoking, there's a voice that says, hey, let's have a cigarette. You've got to detach from that voice. It's not you. It's the addiction, and it's trying to kill you. Mm. And you've got to externalize that and see it as an enemy. But unfortunately, those pathetic, whiny little voices have political representation in socialism. It's someone else's fault. It's not fair. Mm. And so there have been successive governments that have blocked people evolving beyond that. And particularly see this in the way Maori leaders removed these wet academics remove agency from Māori. Oh, you know, there's high crime rates among Māori because the justice system is is racist. It just lets a whole lot of people off the hook for bad behaviour. Mm. It's that whole adage that the gaslight that the socialists will have you believe is that a rising tide will lift all boats. That's the gaslight. Yeah. The reality is that, no, we're going to cut everybody down to the lowest common denominator. That's the reality. You know, I'm glad you brought that up. Did you see the piece was one of the election pieces that I think was Bridie Wilson on Northland? Did you see that? Yeah. Again, Northland and Gisborne are kind of similar, aren't they, in in that sense? My mum grew up in Kaikoui, so I went back there and looked down her street where she grew up. It was pretty grim. My grandfather was an electrician there. He used to do a lot of work for free. I didn't realise your mother was from up north. Yeah. Uh, a whole lot of my family were gum diggers. Things you learn every day. This was interesting. So this is, sorry, Bridie Whitten, mm. Sunday Star Times. It's part of the election coverage. Headline is, my heart couldn't take it anymore. Bridie Whitten discovers how Northland became the cradle of frustration, anger and distrust and asks whether the election will change anything. And I think we talked about this before we started. I think you can correlate a lot of what's going on in Northland, not only to Northland, but also to the East Coast, to parts of central North Island. Metastasizing throughout the country, isn't it? Absolutely. And, uh, it centres around, it starts with a woman called Sonia Bellinger, who's a local, uh, Kaitaia local. Her entire hometown, her entire life, she's packed up in a truck with the dogs and all the rest of it, and she's bought a plot of land down south, and she's off. Mm. Now, it takes a lot yeah. for a Māori to leave their land, a lot. Well, the heartbreaking thing was that she mentions the night she found children eating out of her scrap bin or being threatened at knife point after making a report of concern about a three-year-old crying at home alone. And this is where I keep talking about government growing like a cancer between us. It's like, we'll take care of that. That's our job. And it's like, look, if you've got a three-year-old who's crying in the house beside you or something, that's everyone's job. It's everyone's job to look out for children in a healthy human society. The fact that the government's taken all of these human functions and alienated us from one another, I mean, it's disgusting, but it's dangerous. Mm. 
In she cites part of it too is the violence has increased because of the high number of 501s that have been evicted from Australia and, and gone back there, and that's created that cycle of violence. And as you talked about before, in terms of they all congregate together and they just continue the level of well, lifestyle. Well, I mean, have you ever seen Queensland policing firsthand? They are uh, considerably more heavy-handed, shall we say, than New Zealand police. Mm. So you've got people coming over here who have been used to a certain level of oppression by a much, and a, you know, I find Australia generally has much higher levels of the expectation of behaviour in society. I mean, I've seen people tell a young person to get off their seat and let an old person sit down, and everyone on the bus is saying, yeah, what are you doing? You know, there's that expectation of a standard of behaviour, whereas we've had this awful, cloying, hey, well, you know, they're behaving like a dickhead, you know, because of all sorts of injustices that have happened. Mm. It's always someone else's fault. Yeah, yeah. And that was the theme with this. Did you notice how here was this woman who has left her entire hometown, everything she's known, she's packed everything up, she's heading down south, and yet she doesn't actually address the issues that this woman is saying this is why I'm leaving. She actually allows Willow Jean Prime, who's the current MP, who we know got in by the whisker of the knickers um, over on the special votes, over Matt King, who's also running, obviously, for Democracy NZ, and we've, we've spoken to Matt. And Willow Jean Prime, she believes, Willow Jean believes she's done a good job. She believes she's done a lot for the region. She believes that she's done has been a strong local MP pointing out to the Labour government's investment in health services in the region, 900 million for a new hospital for Whangarei and 10 million towards renovating the Kaitaia hospital amongst them. However, she concedes that with five portfolios and much of her time spent in legislation in Wellington, she hasn't been as visible as other candidates such as Nationals Grant McCallum and Matt King, the former National MP. Yeah, oh, you notice just how quickly old Bridie uh, pivoted after terrible tales of people losing children to murder and abused, neglected children, and then pivots immediately. It is where New Zealand First is trying to resurrect its political fortunes and where political parties born out of frustration over the government's handling of the pandemic and vaccination mandates are peddling misinformation and division to some of the poorest families in the country in an effort to win their votes. My gosh. Yeah, that's that's a position, um, isn't it? That's a stretch, isn't it? Mm. Uh, And they never ever, and I saw this in article after article, they never say what the misinformation is. What, What is the misinformation? She doesn't hold back on that. She continues that throughout the article. New Zealand First still have a lot of social capital in the region, and many people recall the big sums Jones and Winston Peters invested into the region throughout the Provincial Growth Fund. Like, that's a bad thing. Just so. Yeah. And then, of course, we get Whiny Bridie comes back and says, politics has become increasingly incendiary with the politicians experience a surge in harassment and violent threats. Prime said one of her staff stopped wearing a Labour T-shirt when out and about because of the abuse. Mm. Prime has... A prime said a security guard was so concerned for her safety, this is after the debate, the taxpayers' debate, after hearing what members of the crowd were saying, he asked if he could walk her to a car. None of the other candidates, many of whom she'd known for years, stood up for her. She said, I can handle a bit of heckling, but this was undemocratic. Bridie, I, I think what you completely have missed the point, and Willow Janus must know this is democratic, this is 
this is the constituency telling you that they are not happy. Yeah, they're not happy that you did a whole lot of stuff that never appeared in your policies that people got to vote on. Prime says candidates seeking to capitalize on pandemic-related distrust, such as King and Gun, are preying on the community. Those communities where they know there is that distrust, they're vulnerable to misinformation. Again, we don't hear what the misinformation is. Yeah, I guess there's a market for this kind of misinformation. <laughs> Well, it's this to me is an exact example of let's make excuses for a poor performing electoral candidate, because let's face it, she has. She's been whizzed up the ranks within the Labour caucus. As they said, she had five portfolios. Piss poor. Piss mm. poor electoral candidate. She's been missing on the ground. And she admits that. She admits that. So they're trying to cover over and paper the cracks of her poor performance in one of the most impoverished regions in the country by slamming pretty much every other candidate that's there, saying, but, you know, you have to be careful of all of these others because if you go for the national guy, well, he is just representative of all the bad things that happened before we got here. Uh, so it's their fault. Yeah. You can't go with that. You'll be going backwards or everyone else is nutters. Well, Chris Hipkins was saying that uh, yesterday morning in an interview with Ryan Bridges. He said, you know, you, uh, I know things are tough for people, but, um, you know, you've got to be careful putting the people back who, whose policies created so many of these problems we're dealing with now. I'm pretty sure their policies didn't borrow $100 billion. Again, at post-truth media environment. Well, it is. And I think that there is, and this is where, so part of the reason I highlighted this, and you've just come back from Gisborne, and I mentioned it on panel yesterday is that whilst the Māori vote is small, you've got seven Māori seats. Labour currently hold uh, all bar one, which is how we have to party Māori in the House. I haven't seen any polling for Wairiki, but I have heard of the polling for Ikarara, Fati and uh, Tahuru over on the west, um, the west coast of the North Island. And there was a hope at one point that Te Pāti Māori thought that they would pick up three of those seats, that Rawari would hold Wairiki, Mecca would continue to hold a Karawarafiti but for Te Pāti Māori and Debbie will pick up over there in the West. Now, the polling for both Ikarawarafiti and Te Haora is that that's not going to happen at this stage. It, it's not looking like a done thing at all. Mm. So then that leaves everything back with Rawari. Now, that seat, that seat, Wairiki, which is that central seat in the middle of the country, so think Rotorua, think Taniatua, think Whakatane, through that centre Taupo, think that centre seat. Now, that seat, that one's been a good old rubber ball for years. Um, Tūrā Flavel has held it. Tāmaki Kofi has held it in recent years. Rawari won it off Tāmati. Tāmati, of course, is now jumping over to step in for his cuz over in, um, in Gizzi. Yeah. If Rawari loses Wairiki, which I think could be on the card. I think the anti-party Māori sentiment is so bad. I think that there will be voters that will look at either of those, may not vote for them, or may go back the other direction. He was only holding on to it by the skin of his teeth anyway. He didn't win it by a huge margin. If they lose that, that's to party Māori out of the house. And as Cam says, that means that that sucks those candidates uh, back into the Labour camp, which drops people off the list. But the other side of that is the party vote, because in those Māori electorates, there's not a lot of choice. I mean, essentially, yeah. you've got left, really left, and holy 
left. There's not a lot going on. There's there's a couple here and there, but essentially you you're only voting on one side of the fence. I think though that protest vote will manifest in the party vote. And I wonder how many of those Māori voters might candidate vote Labour or an alternative if they have one and party vote New Zealand first. I really do. Everyone is feeling the toxicity that's been drummed up in New Zealand race relations. And I I said in yesterday's panel, I I think New Zealand Māori and Pākehā are pretty over that. And I think New Zealand First is a natural nexus of the area where we meet as decent people. We look at our commonalities. We're happy with each other being how we want to be. But, you know, I, I talk about it as a zipper consensus. You know, we've, we've got so much in common and yet we're being torn apart by the corners of our differences. I think there are three levels where New Zealand First will get the boost. It's from someone who wants to make politics interesting by chucking the old pinstripe and the smile into the mix, the people who see that as a normalisation of race relations, and the, the people with the only, where it's the only place to go to get expression of some of the reservations that so many people are feeling about, yeah, the party line that's through the medical association, through the media, through, the, through politics. Mm. One of the things in terms of making a selection is that, you know, we all look at the issues. And I've gotten to a point now where, uh, as I mentioned before, my candidate vote's fairly set, my party vote's been swinging around, I'm solidifying as each week rolls on. One of the things that has stood out for me is that you've got to realise that if you're a minor party and not one of the major parties, is that there's a lot of stuff that you're going to say that you want to do that you're not just simply going to achieve. But it's a little bit like flinging mud at the wall, right? You've got to throw lots and lots and lots of it at the wall and some of it might stick. And Mm. the one thing I believe that I think Winston is throwing out there, and I think he's looking at having stick in a negotiation, is the expanding the scope of the COVID oral inquiry. That's one facet. And also, in his interview with Paul Brennan, if you haven't, if you didn't catch it, listen to it on the replays, he took just a perfect line into that corner, you know, where he he said, uh, and I'll have to quote him approximately, but he basically said, look, you know, got all these people trying to drag me into all this political game playing. We've got real problems here in New Zealand, and I'm not hearing a serious discussion about them. And I don't hear that from Luxon either. No. I don't hear hear any sort of real urgency that, you know, this country is potentially going down the gurgler. We've lost our sovereignty to all sorts of three-letter, two-letter agencies. There's no discussion of the me- of it in the media because they're bought and paid for. Well, this is where that inquiry for me is really important because from that, if you can widen the scope on that inquiry and some truth actually comes out, because we, if they do do it properly, we know that it's there. There is data now that is coming out. If anyone actually, The Spectator, did you read um, an article that was in The Spectator this last week? I didn't catch that one. I know the okay. one you mean. From The Spectator Australia, Rebecca Barnett. It is one that actually you should be able to access. It's not behind a paywall. Scientists shocked and alarmed at what's in the mRNA shots. Now, this information has been floating around for a little while. I know Mr. Marie has been sharing information to you and I on this, but this article actually coalesces all that information into one place. And it's ostensibly, there have been a number of scientists and researchers uh, and clinicians who have discovered that there have been contaminations, DNA contaminations, 
within vials of the vaccines that actually then breach the FDA, the European EMA um, Medicals Association, even in Australia. So it means that the, essentially the products have not been tested properly and are not fit for, for purpose. Well, and that there were different products and that were, were trialled yes. that was the basis for so many claims about efficacy, which mm. in themselves, it turns out, weren't the way they were presented to us. No. But yeah, and, that, that contamination with bacterial DNA that then can just randomly get into the genome. And also, too, there was these, and some of these are researchers that were pro-vaccines, and we're not talking about people that sit on the conspiratorial and quotation marks side of the camp. These are people that are doing genuine research as part of their day-to-day work, have discovered this, are alarmed at what they have found. And this guy, McKernan, who has 25 years' experience in the field, ran an experiment again, confirming that the vials contained up to, in his position, 18 to 70 times more DNA contamination than the legal limits allow by the European Medical Agency and the Food and Drug Administration. I mean, this is huge. This sort of information is out there. If we get a proper Royal Commission of Inquiry into the COVID response, and the vaccine rollout that takes in all this information, a lot of things can change from the truth. But without well, the truth, yeah, we've once got again, the fact that my primary thing is I'm not an expert on this, but I want to see the discussion. I have, you know, enough training in science to know that saying the science is settled or 90% of scientists uh, agree just isn't good enough. This was something we picked out of the, um, whole paper. And for me, a lot of a lot of the themes of this week swing around Heather Duplessy Allen's article where she or column where she talks about the conflict between the laptop class and the tactile class. The laptop class are just condescendingly say, well we could let you have the debate, but then you'd come up with the wrong conclusions and that wouldn't be good. And and that's just and as I said, it's not just in the time Labour's been in power. This has been through our society, these organizations just turning the wheel really hard one way because they think it needs to go that way. Ministry for Women being one that I Mm. always think of. She's talking about in terms of how many people consistently vote against co-governance. She said, that result surprised me. It was many times higher than I would have expected. She was saying, but basically she's a laptop kind of gal. You saw that in... I saw that in the post and I took a photo and sent it to you. And Elise Johnson, the head of content development for Stuff's Mast, said the post, the press and the Waikato Times, who's moved to New Zealand from Britain. And she did a piece called A Warning Coming from Brexit Britain on Divisive Referendums. She quoted uh, an exclusive polling for the post from Freshwater. So that was that Freshwater poll we talked about a few weeks ago. It is revealed that 48% of New Zealanders agreed to varying degrees that there should be a referendum on Māori co-governance to end the confusion and let every New Zealander have a say. Only 17% thought it was a bad idea and 34% were neutral. From the same poll, 28% agreed that there should be more co-governance with Māori in government decision-making, while 34% were neutral and 45% disagreed. Almost half the country disagreed. Um, The 34% of the swingers, they're the go-alongs to get-alongs, but you wouldn't need to get many more of them to make the majority. Additionally, the poll revealed that 49% agreed government departments should be known by the English name, not their Māori name. 
The issue with referendums is that they require people to answer a simple yes or no to a question. In this case, the responses would decide whether there should be less or more representation for Māori. It would be a hard-fought referendum and the battles for the swing votes would be ferocious. It's a decision that would define race relations for generations to come. She then goes on to talk about Brexit. In the UK, Brexit referendum is now known for its false promises. The most famous promise coming from the Leave side claimed that the vote would create an extra £350 million a week for the National Health Service, which is very much yet to materialise. Putting aside the broken promises, a referendum's real harm comes from the style of public debate it can legitimise. We see this playing out in the voice referendum in Australia. The debate has given a greater platform to conspiracy theories and warnings of reparations. A referendum has the power to morph very quickly from a yes or no debate into whatever it can be. It's interesting when people say that stuff out loud, hey, yeah. that, that, just, that contempt for the proletariat. <laughs> That just, to me, it was just dripping of condescension because yeah. if you've been following the voice referendum in Australia, the yes vote is tanking. The yeah. Australians, you know, the, one, the ones that you described, yeah, come on, mate, look, you get up out of that seat for that old lady. That yeah. voice is speaking, and it's speaking quite loudly. It's interesting that refusal of people to be deterred by being called racist, the stuff's just losing its power. It's just squid ink. I mean, as I've explained, it's not because people don't like Māori that they don't want this stuff. It's because they don't like being talked to like they're slaves by mm. the Māori elites who measurably do bugger all for the tutua, the common people. Did you see Winston's interview with Moana Maniapoto? Yeah. Yeah. I thought that was fantastic. He held his ground really well with her. And she got a bit excited by that, I thought. Yeah, she did. She did. She, she got a little bit tingly. I think she wasn't expecting how crisp he was on a lot of these details. Yeah. And he was quite blunt with her. So he called out, so this was from Māori Television, and he called out, she would say things like, for example, about apartheid. Why do you use that word apartheid? Do you know what this, that word means for our people? Mm. And he's like, because that's what it is. Yeah. And you want to make race-based law. That, he was, that separates it, people. And I think that there will be a lot of queer in Kaumatua who would have watched that interview, mm. and there would have been a lot of head nodding. Well, you know, this is where it's really important that there's a strong voice from Pākehā New Zealanders emphasising that, you know, there's love, there's kinship between us and Māori. This isn't uh, us wanting to oppress you. We read about that stuff that's happening mm. in Auckland and Northland and see it in the streets of other towns. It's appalling. Children that are suffering like that are all of our concern. And we need to all be involved in fixing it. We don't need to make race-based law to do it, although Kopapa Māori approaches have their place if they're effective. Mm. Exactly. Exactly. The next little stuff in this article that I pulled out, that this to me was the telling one. In referendums, the media is obliged to air all sides of the debate with the risk of dog whistle politics being the megaphone. Now, there is the real reason why they don't want a referendum on this, because all that dirty laundry is going to get aired. Let's not let the truth get in the way of a good referendum. Yeah, the thing that always worries me is 
this assuredness they have pushing all this stuff and you can sense their nervousness and they're becoming more shrill as it's not working. The propaganda is just not working. But it's almost like they've got a finish line that they're seeing. They're hearing the footsteps behind them, but they're just pushing ahead to reach that finish line. Now, whether that finish line is a central central bank digital currency that's linked to some sort of social credit scheme, whether it's all of these uh, misinformation laws that DLEDA's gone off to drive globally that shuts out voices even more than they're already shut out like ours. That's what makes me nervous. You know, whether there's, they're thinking if we can just sort of survive and hang on through to the next shock that's planned, that's going to make people get in line because we know, you know, all of the MK Ultra research these guys have done has revealed that if you want to break people down, periodic stress works a lot better than constant stress. Hmm. Who knows? Who knows? She goes on to say giving oxygen and legitimacy to debating all sides of a referendum would embolden and inflame an underbelly of less tolerant views. Certainly following the Brexit referendum in the UK saw an increase in overall racism, not directed towards Europeans, but rather anyone that could be perceived as an immigrant. (sighs) Really? I just looked at this. I was appalled by this, Elise. I really did. It's literally saying we cannot have an open conversation because if we do not agree with the orthodoxy. Yeah, it's Willie Jackson's, this is the new democracy. Mm. It's not like the old democracy. I've gotten to a point now with any of these people, if you struggle to understand what it is that they're trying to say, as Neil Oliver often says, it isn't about what they say it is about. Whatever they're saying, dollars to donuts, they'll actually be meaning the opposite. Or the outcome is that's desired mm. is the exact opposite of what they say. It's Luciferian, that whole reverse meaning and upside-downness. Yes, indeed. Just what else grabbed your eye over the, over the week? Well, Andrea Vance's um, new haircut I thought was very fetching. Much fringe. That much softer fringe, that little bit of that little bit of femininity creeping in, and she's taken off the Darth Vader hairstyle. So yeah, no, that that looks nice, and I, it's hopefully you know the start of a, a whole new charm offensive by uh, by New Zealand's lemon-lipped political commentators. Utter charmlessness. She, oh. uh, of course, her article was around the Cryptosporidian outbreak in Queenstown. I just feel like this is going to be Havelock North 2.0. Right. In what sense? Well, in the sense that they are going to use this as a political football in order to push and legitimise elements of Three Waters in the Havelock document because of lack of investment of infrastructure within water assets in local body politics. Yeah. You know, National always talk about this is taxpayers' money. They never really get around to talking about not so much money from the taxpayer as money where the taxpayer's future earnings is used as collateral for stupid borrowing. They don't talk about that nearly enough, I I think. And, you know, one of the big things about the Three Waters plan was it raised the amount of debt that these organisations were allowed to have. And that was where a lot of the improvements come from. It's just blowing out the debt. Again, it's just like talking about stuff that is a distraction rather than the real elephant in the room. You know what I found more interesting than Andrea's piece? I happened to glance up to the letters in the editor that were just above Andrea. 
Oh, right. Yeah. There's one I've, there that says Green Coalition. I've inf- Yeah, that, yes. that warranted sure, a bit of highlighter. It did. Surely it is time for Labour and National to put aside petty point scoring and politicising and face the perilous future of climate change, war, pestilence, famine and mass migration by enacting a grand coalition. After watching the first round of debates, there is not a lot between Labour and National policies. The main points of difference being tax, housing and crime, all needing long-term solutions beyond the election cycle. Such a coalition would keep the extremes of the left and right at bay, although I have to say I find Party Māori and the Greens more palatable than ACT. Germany's Angela Merkel ran a grand coalition very successfully for many years. Mm, well, what very terrifying successfully. terrifying thought. Let a million military-aged males... Um, yeah, through, through open borders that they're all now starting to freak out about. I looked at that and I thought to myself, thank you, comrade, for your thought on that. Because that just goes to your equity. Yes. It's going to be an interesting few weeks. We need to maintain that sense of compassion in terms of long-term compassion. Mm. And what that, that is going to involve getting people off the couch and jogging metaphorically and... Uh, in terms of work. And the problem that you get, you know, there's that observation that people on the left think that poor people would be better if there there wasn't just so much oppression holding them back. And people on the right think that poor people would get ahead if they just got off their butts and worked. It doesn't factor in IQ and it doesn't factor in brain damage. I think there is a place for making sure everyone's got work. Because uh, I remember hearing a talk once by a Welsh doctor and he said studies of the effect of unemployment were revealed that it was had a similar deleterious effect on your health as smoking two packs of cigarettes a day. It's really bad. So again, you can look at it through a compassionate rather than a, a punishing lens and go, well, you know, it's going to suck at first. Like mm. it sucks going for those first few runs where you can feel every beer you had and everything you smoked. But eventually... You look back on the time when you felt that it was something you really didn't want to do, and you're so glad that you got through that period. Well, you mentioned something before we started recording, and I just want to cycle back to that because I thought it was a really good point. And it was around mental health, and we're seeing this that despite the government saying that they've thrown this money into mental health, like everywhere that they've thrown money, where are the outcomes for this? We know that there is a mental health crisis out there. And when it comes to that, and this is why I'm reading this book, The Sad Guide to Happiness, and I'm really interested in talking to Gad Sad around happiness and how we obtain happiness. But one of the things you talked about was that whole sense of mana. And one of the things that gives anybody a sense of mana or a sense of pride, which, as you said before, the Australians seem to have more than what we have here, is actually a sense of belonging and well-being and often that is attached to your ability to go out into the into your community and work and have a sense of independence and self-ownership yeah and and you know what it means if a young man has some runs on the board feels like he's made an effort and he's built up some mana he's far less likely to push all those chips forward on a bet if someone looks at him the wrong way and he's got the option of punching them in the face. 
you know, because people are going to be disappointed. It's vital that people have money. And old uh, Shane Tapoe, you know, had that. Again, you know, we both sort of thought, Shane, you know, how much of this was given to you by one of the comms people and you've put your own little nips and tucks on it? But he, his argument seemed to be basically that mental illness is, is an identity. It's not something that you go through fleetingly. So, you know, the idea, but yeah, having worked in a client advocating mental health organization, remember old friend Genesis Portini, who was a very strong advocate in that area, saying the best thing for people with mental illness is to hang out with people who don't have mental illness. Also, to have opportunities to build up their mana when they're not mentally ill, because your mana takes a hit when you are. Yeah, that involves work, you know, and mm. you can go back to when I think it was the Clark government shut down all those um, idea services workshops because they weren't paying the minimum wage. And there's so many jobs to do. Like we should, you know, all the slash in the forestry, there's a job there you could make. You know, if you were going to be imaginative, you could make uh, drug rehabilitation camps uh, where yeah. people worked during the day doing that, did something creative with the slash, got better, felt that they'd achieved something. If you've ever worked on land, and I've done a lot of this, planting trees and cut 10 kilometres of possum trapping tracks in the back of uh, Haparapara uh, catchment near Takar, you do feel a connection to the whenua long after you stop. You feel that there's something you've done that's good. There's all sorts of opportunities for mana uh, uplifting in mm. that stuff. But we, we need, and this is where I'd get back to Stephen Joyce's not quite getting there, we need to totally take things to bits and have a look at them. And that's going to mean having a freer media. It's going to mean taking the national conversation off the tracks it's on. I mean, we, we do need to, as citizens take responsibility, mm. take responsibility for ourselves, our families, our neighbourhoods, our, our regions. But there's been, and you could almost argue it's been deliberate, you know, a, a family that's got to find that extra $1,000 to pay the mortgage has got even less time to do that. Mm. So, you, you know, it's, it, the dependency on government's almost reached the critical mass where people have got no choice. And it's that demoralisation too, you know, of yeah, having to... But you're not measuring in the GDP no. figures, in the health system. You need high morale. Mm. And if you've ever had to deal with those government departments, which, you know, I have had to in the last couple of years for the first time ever, is it is just soul-sucking. Yeah, it's the, the tactile class versus the laptop class. For whatever reason, I think it's reading a lot of Steinbeck and Jack London uh, as a kid, um, Jack Karak, I was always very concerned to, to be involved in the tactile class. I've, I've always enjoyed doing uh, physical work. And I think part of that comes from my childhood growing up on on farms, having families who farmed. And my image of what men were revolved around, you know, my, watching my cousin and uncle and grandfather shear sheep with big shoulders and their dogs and guns and trucks and I always found it very difficult to see men in suits as men. Yeah, yeah, laptops. Yeah, and I, this is my problem with Christopher Lux. And it was quite, you know, speaking of Genesis Portini, I remember once I used to shave my head and shave my face and I'd sort of let it go. And he said, oh, oh, Marty, you look, yeah, I reckon you should keep the keep the beard, bro. You know, you, uh, and I said, oh, you know, you know yeah, yeah, grow your hair a bit. 
And I said, oh, how come? And he, he sort of struggled a bit and said, it just seems like, you know, when you've got no hair, it's like you've you've got no inner life. And I think that's a problem that they have with Luxon as well. Maybe you should have a moment where he lets his hair grow. I had my best friend here over the weekend and he had great fun helping me collate the stuff from the papers. And I handed him the scissors. So he applied what I call the queer eye for the news guy for us and there were lots of little interests and we've covered a few things actually that he chopped out but this is one that he did chop out and it's only a small piece and and you'll think why is this related to what we're discussing this morning and I think it's very related because this is where we could potentially head up and in a way the theme of what's going on here is sort of loosely analogous to what is going on. The headline is called Bag Ladies of the Privileged Set. Secret police in North Korea are mobilised to stamp out decadent foreign influences such as film, television and even haircuts. But the rules do not apply to the women around Kim Jong-un, the country's leader. Photographs of his recent visit to meet Russian President Vladimir Putin in eastern Russia show his sister and his foreign minister carrying European handbags banned in North Korea under international sanctions. Kim's former girlfriend, who serves as his head of protocol, is the exception, however. She has had to make do with a cheap Chinese brand. Ko Sun Hui, Kim's foreign minister, is an experienced diplomat well known for her heavy smoking and the ability to outdrink her male colleagues. During a visit to an aviation plant in somewhere unpronounceable in Russian, she carried a vintage Zumi bag by Gucci, which sells secondhand online for 16700 New Zealand dollars. Kim Jo Jong, the leader's sister, regarded as one of the most powerful people in the country, carried a Lady Dior calfskin bag, which costs 11500 new here in New Zealand. By contrast, Huyen Song Wol, the former pop star rumoured to be Kim's old flame, has a bag made out of China, which costs New Zealand $14. At home, North Korea officials pursue a campaign against the decadent culture, such as dying here, drinking parties, as well as films, TV dramas, news programs, especially those from South Korea. Senior members of the regime, however, are known for their appetite for foreign luxuries. And that is very much of the good for me, but not for thee file. And we are starting to see shades of that here. Well, I mean, this, you know, this is an animal farm. It is. An out, out here, Rona, animal farm, just waiting to happen, isn't it? It's never quite appreciated, is it, the, the, the extent to which men and women cooperate. You know, we're always sort of given this idea, well, there's a glass ceiling. I think in one of the earlier episodes, I, I shared my theory that corresponding with the glass ceiling, there's what I call the pink seal. These men who want status like to surround themselves with adoring PR, HR ladies. And, uh, they run interference to, for, you know, against any pretenders to the throne. And you see Christopher Luxon reflexively doing this also. Nicola Willis. Nicola Willis and, and Erica Stanford, which isn't to say they're not competent, but, you know, the whole, well, I want 50% of my list MPs to be ladies. And there, there's this kind of, corporate thing where the captains of industry like to have those approving ladies. Obviously, Kim Jong-un uh, is no exception. No, no exception. Well, we've covered a lot of ground this morning, as always, and I know, you know, as the weeks roll on, I mean, early voting, by the time we get together and chat next week, early voting will have opened. That will be interesting to see. We have got feedback, Marty. Oh! Yes! Ooh. Let's finish on a high note, shall we? 
Right. First up from Mark. Hi, please pass on to Marie and Marty. I cannot miss their show. Well done. Keep it up. I'm listening in order, so I don't want to miss anything. Your political insights are enlightened. Keep it up. So that was from Mark. Thanks, Mark. Thanks, Mark. We will. Oh, Mike. Do you remember we talked to, I think, then the thing oh, that was the, last week, Mike from Fox. Mike who lost his wife who lit it and knitted his, right. Yes. And Mike sent me a photo, of, I'll, I'll make sure it's shared with you. Mike did send me a photo of the blanket. It was absolutely beautiful. Um, I did hear Marie read out my message and I loved her show. I've been so busy trying to sort all kinds of dramas out with my new mobile home. Uh, so I haven't been able to listen to anything. But here is a picture of the rug that my wife made and it's beautiful. So Mike, thank you so much for sharing that. And that's such a beautiful, precious thing that you have so it is just wonderful he then goes on to say hi again Marine Marty I'm just listening to the replay of Media Matters because I missed the first 15 minutes the other day it was interesting to hear Marty talk about the big convention in Auckland last week which was the NZD Suez conference and how it was so good to finally meet some of the people from RCR that he speaks to, but he hasn't yet met. I hope you guys at RCR and VFF realise that you're another rock stars for all of us who have basically given up TV and have completely given up on mainstream radio and media. If it wasn't for all of you, I don't know where we would be. I know I would not be in a good place. So thank you again for everything that you do. So That's funny. so nice to hear, isn't it? And, you know, it's often because we do this by ourselves, even though we're talking to other people, but essentially we're on our own. So it's it, it's so nice to hear that people it's resonating mm. with people and it's encouraging them and making them feel a bit more hopeful that there are other people out there who aren't thinking like the people they're seeing on TV. Because it's so easy. They want to keep us separated and keep us alone. So it's really nice that, that we are able to do that because, I mean, Marty, as you know, is, is in Papamoa, I'm in Napier, and we do so much of this over Zoom and can feel a little lonely. And so we talk into microphones and we don't always know who's listening on the other side. Keep speaking the truth, and I'd say that to everyone. Just keep speaking the truth and don't be forced to lie. No, absolutely not. Marie and Marty, this won't cheer Marty up, oh dear, but at least I'm thinking about something he said. His banality of evil, evil with chipkin sausage rolls brought to mind holidaying German camp guards. They were mugging for the camera and while holding up some fruit. I tried to find the photo to send him, but bucket if I can, Mark. I actually know the photo he's talking about. Do you know, have you ever seen that photo? Yeah, I, I, I will have. But I was saying, uh, I'm not sure if I said it on air yesterday uh, with the um, impromptu panel. On Netflix now, there's the documentary of the book Ordinary Men, which is about the Polish police or German police as well, I think, who, who were co-opted mm -hmm. into these uh, execution squads. And just how easy it is to bend people to do awful things. And we're so fond of patting ourselves on the back, thinking we've come so far, but we're still the same creatures. And you've got yeah. to watch out for that. Yeah. Absolutely. So thank you so much to everyone that sent us feedback. Inbox at realitycheck.radio, of course, is the email and 2057 is the text number. Oh, well, thank you, Marty. We will do this all again next week. As I said, early voting will have opened and there will be more polls and there will be more information and I am sure more. More to talk about. More to talk about. So thank yeah. you, Nick. You have a great week and I will be back very, very shortly in just un momento, a Work News of the Week. And I've got a few little interesting, quirky things to let you know about here. I'm on sure you do. Have a great week, everyone. Thanks again, yeah. Marie, for the great work you do too. Oh, thank you, mate. All right, we'll talk. Do it all again next week.
It's time for the Woke News of the Week. Welcome to the Woke News of the Week. These are some of the news stories from around the world that have caught my eye this week. Firstly, from Auckland, Ward Councillor objects to decolonisation posters. Veteran politician Morris Williamson has lodged a complaint at Auckland Council over staff putting up posters in communal areas of its offices to promote decolonisation, actions for non-Māori Kiwis. Staff kitchens at the Council's Albert Street headquarters have been deemed politically neutral after Williamson repeatedly pulled down posters. Williamson is a former National Party cabinet minister who is now a Howick Ward councillor. Woke takeover of Whitehall. Senior civil servants have expressed concern to the cabinet secretary about what they see as a woke takeover of Whitehall. In a letter signed by 42 staff from 16 government departments, they argue that the civil service has been influenced inappropriately by gender ideology. This means that some civil servants believe that certain ideas about gender and social issues are gaining far too much influence in government decision-making. They worry that these ideas may not be based on careful analysis or the best interests of the country, but rather a particular ideology known as woke. The term woke is often used to describe a political and social awareness focused on issues like racial and gender inequality. Some people see it as a positive force for change, while others view it overtly as ideological or divisive. In this case, the civil servants are concerned that government policies could be shaped by this ideology rather than being based on careful consideration of facts and the needs of the country. They want to ensure the government decisions are made in a fair and rational way without undue influence from a particular ideology. Up the brass plaque. Hold on to your hats because the woke plaque just got ripped off a historic statue of Henry Dundas in Edinburgh and it has started a ruckus. You see, the BLM wokesters who thought it was a good idea to stick the plaque on the old statue in a vain attempt to rewrite history or virtue signal, no one is quite sure, has now fallen foul of the Melville Monument Committee, who have confirmed that they are behind the removal of the brass plate and published a letter detailing their reasons. The removal of the plaque is a historic development and monumentous occasion in a five-year saga founder Viscount Bobby Melville, who was a descendant of Henry Dundas, told the Herald. The plaque represented a grotesquely inaccurate version of history that had no place on the monument or the public square. He added Henry Dundas opposed slavery his entire life when he developed a plan to abolish slavery and the slave trade altogether. Hardline abolitionists refused to support him, but they later regretted this. Now, the removal has been dubbed illegal by the Scottish Greens and has also been reported to the police. Shock jock sells out and goes woke. Howard Stern, a famous radio personality known for his controversial humour, has responded to critics who label him as woke. He proudly embraces this label, saying, I am woke and I love it. In the past, Stern is known for his offensive jokes that some considered sexist and racist. However, he now sees being woke as a compliment, indicating that he supports causes like transgender rights and vaccination. Stern explained that being woke to him means being aware and informed, particularly on today's society. He opposes former President Donald Trump and criticizes those who reject COVID-19 vaccines, emphasizing the importance of science. 
His newfound wokeness marks a significant shift from his earlier provocative comments, including fat-shaming and making racially insensitive remarks. Howard Stern's transformation from the controversial humorist to a supporter of progressive values reflects changing societal attitudes, with Stern now openly embracing his woke identity. Let's just see if this means that he will go woke and broke. Finally, in the woke quote of the week, this goes to Winston Peters in an interview with Moana Maniapoto for Māori Television. What does woke mean? Well, woke means I woke up yesterday and I know more than you. Want an easier way to listen to RCR? Well, you can now download the brand new Reality Check Radio app, both on iOS and Android. We've completed our beta testing, and the app is now live. You can visit the App Store's direct or find out all you need to know at www.realitycheck.radio forward slash app. That's at realitycheck.radio forward slash app. Our test bunnies have been hard at play to ensure you have access to everything, from listening to our live broadcast, downloading some of our incredible interviews, and checking out the latest blogs, all from the very same app. So get listening and download the RCR app now. Thank you for joining me this week for another dose of counterculture. Have you downloaded the app yet? Everyone I've spoken to this week who has, loves it. It's available now in the app stores, both for iOS, for Apple and Android. And best of all, it's free. So you have to download it. It is a great tool so you can listen to all this fantastic content whenever and wherever you want. There's still more great content here to come on Reality Check Radio, so don't disappear. But time for one more song from me, another summer banger, which is both happy and has a hook you can't help but sing along to. Time to turn it up for Uncle Cracker and follow me. And I'll see you guys all next week. You've been listening to Counterculture with Marie Busky on RCR, RCR. Reality Check Radio. Radio. Radio.